takeaway is three gets into the CMC exchange, okay? You have a commodity, you want another commodity, and so you get money to get that commodity. If I have a cow and you have some geese, but you don't want a cow, and I really need those geese, I go find someone who wants a cow, I trade it for equal value in this central representation of va of congealed labor value, and then I trade it to you for some geese because you want that central representation too. Yes. And that's kind of a real key in three. So three is money, is what makes money, and it gets into the dynamics of, of how money can do a little more than just be a third commodity, but it has to be a real commodity with value, Mark says. Mm -hmm. uh, well, he starts off with that. He kind of gets away from that a little bit and says, well, you know, once it's socially accepted, it becomes its own social necessity. Uh, but it says you have a universal value, universal equalizer. Uh, he talked about this earlier, like, you know, two tons of iron equals 200, you know, uh, pounds of gold, yep. and that 200 pounds of gold equates to everything else. So now it's the universal equivalent. So what he says is that becomes socially accepted, so now it has social power. So even if the actual weight of gold, you know, changes value, that exchange value that that social construct has, that's your money, that's where its value is going to sit on exchange, regardless of use value. Yep. Um, so what that does, and this is where he gets into it, he says CMC is not just a straight commodity for commodity exchange with a middleman. It has a power dynamic, okay? You want that that universal money, that you can hold things over that. Yep. So if you say, I want to trade the cow for the money, well, now my money can do anything. So you've got everything in your hands. So nobody nobody wants that cow unless they're the guy with the need for the cow, and then they have to give up their money for it. Everybody wants that money. Yep. Okay. That's special. So people start doing other things with it. They start hoarding it, mm -hmm. which takes it out of this magical exchange system that the liberals talk about with yeah. supply and demand, demand and everything's a circular exchange because you start pulling this money out and all of a sudden the gear starts slowing down. But you'll notice, you know, capitalism chugs right on through. Uh, he also gets into, what was the other section for the, the money part? Was it loans? Uh, he, starts getting into, he starts getting into interest and credit yeah, inside interest of and there. Credit. Okay. So, and again, that's the interesting... So again, when you're talking about the, the circulation, you can take money out. You know, if I choose to pull... All of my money out of the system. I'm not buying any commodities. I'm just holding it. Normally, that's because you're of insecurity. You're worried about something. You, you're afraid that your money is not going to be there tomorrow. So you you hoard it. And and Marx generally considers hoarding to be you know miserly, it, it, not logical. There's no logical reason to do it. There would be no practical end game to it um, in this kind of a system. If the system worked. CMC. If that was the way all the way around, there would be no need for that. It would it would serve no purpose. It would stop, but then you get into the the fun fun world of interest, um, and what and, and interest is a, a fun touchy subject for everybody. Um, what what did what did Papa Carl have to say about about interest? Well, um, and that's where he put it as payment is is the way he called it mm -hmm. when he went into the interest. Um, so payment now, uh, he was saying that the the contradictions were starting to come to head. Uh, if there was a, a money crisis, things were slowed down by a hoarder. And those contradictions could also come to head in, in older systems if there wasn't an expectation to get things back. So, like, you had a harvest, right? If you were the landlord and there were a serf and you wanted their harvest in, you know, November when it comes out, well, it's not like you couldn't let them farm on the land until then. So that harvest, that payment was coming later. And then, of course, if it didn't come later, there were going to be contradictions mm. and force was going to start coming in. 
Uh, payment does the same thing, okay? I have this thing I don't have now. I have, you have that thing I need now. I'm going to say I'm going to pay you later. And if you decide that's enough value for you, then we can do it. Well, that kind of throws some wrenches into things, right? If everything's exchange, 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 well, this payment's delaying stuff. You're really going commodity for commodity, and then you're in object, um, injecting money later. And that gets kind of messy. So he says commodity alone are not money, okay? But now the cry is everywhere. Money alone is a commodity. And the heart pants after fresh water, his soul after money, the only wealth. In a crisis, the antithesis between commodities and their value form, money becomes heightened, okay? So what that's saying is when you have a, a financial boom or bust, right, uh -huh. money becomes so critical that people realize it's, you know, the commodities start dropping in value and everything's about money. I got to get this money. You know, that's survival technique. I know that's where the power is. And so that just tells you that money has this power that other commodities don't. Okay. Now money yeah. only has that power and he gets into that right at the beginning of the chapter. Money have power has power because of commodities. Commodities don't have power because of money. Okay, without commodities, money would do nothing. It's just an exchange value. If there's nothing to exchange, what the hell's the why point? Why would we? We wouldn't need it. Yeah. Well, why would we need it? But once it becomes this universal exchange value, now it has power. So people don't even think about the commodities. They think about the, the money. money. Okay. When you get your paycheck, when you get your paycheck, you're not thinking of. Oh, cool! I just got paid ten loaves of bread and two coats and a goat. You're thinking I have X amount of I have three hundred dollars. Like that's your your it is a it is a value unto itself, even if it is not exchanging for anything at that time. Yeah, and really that that's already going somewhere. I mean, you think about oh, you know, I got my paycheck. I got to make my house payment. I got to make my car payment. Mm -hmm. I've got to make these payments. This this money is set on these commodities I already have. It's ready to be exchanged, right? And sometimes yeah. you think that when you're in a panic, oh, yeah. but realistically, you just think I got my money. I need my money. I got my money. Oh, no, the payment's due. My money's gone. Yeah, and but there goes the money. Yeah. So. And so, again, that just outlines, again, it's the, it's the understanding that that part is necessary. You have to take, you have to get through that part. And, again, there's nothing, I don't think there's anything too terribly controversial in there. I can't, I can't think of any, I, you know, I'm <laughs> no, sure there is somewhere. I'm sure, I'm sure someone wants to, but, again, if you're, if you're this far in, if you're wanting to play this mind exercise, if you're not willing to make that, that, you know, jump with us, you're, you're probably going to have a hard time the rest of the way through here. Um, yeah. But again, it, it, that is, that is a pretty well outlined, outlined system at that point. So that is a very rudiment. I think, I think he calls it the Robin, they referred to like the Robinson Crusoe economy, yeah. the, the commodities for commodities. And we're all trading at an equal value and we go to the market and we try to, it's a very, very rudimentary form. And it's definitely not, you know, that wouldn't be where you'd want to stop. So then we jump forward into four, which is where we start figuring out what capital actually is. It's, it's like when they put the title up 30 minutes into the boat in the movie. It's like title screen. Here we are. Capital. What is it? Yeah. So basically what that's saying is you have CMC and CMC's making the world go round. But we have these contradictions. Not only does money have more power in these two exchanges, there's an MC and a CM exchange and the M, the money has power in all these exchanges. But now, to contradict that, if you're going to have two CMC exchanges and you have a possibility of something coming out of the system, and that means just to keep things afloat, just to keep things running in between, you need an MCM exchange. There's going to be someone that's going to come in there, they're going to buy the first thing, they're going to get that commodity, and they're going to turn around and they're going to sell. Now, as we talked about last time, 
you're not going to take money and spend it on a commodity to get more money so that you have the same amount. No, that would seem kind of silly. That would seem kind of silly. You're there to get more money. So you're there to go from M to M. So the, the, the CMC, it's not a straight C to C exchange. The MCM, it's not really a straight M to M exchange. It's an M to M prime exchange. Yep. Okay. So you're going to go M to C. You're going to take your money. You're, you're going to give up that power for a commodity. Okay. That you don't care. You don't give two shits about. You don't give two shits you about. You have no commodity. need for it. You have no use for it. You you don't need whatever it is that you're buying in that case. It's not what it's there for. Yes, yes. So you want a commodity, and you want the commodity turn it back to the M prime. You want to take something and exchange it, and turn around and exchange it again. Okay, but you want to get more value out of your exchange. And now Marx talks about. Well, you know, you can play your cards right. You can swindle people. Mm-hmm. You can be a little dirty with it, but. None of that is actually going to generate more value. At some point, that's like a one-time sale. Like you and me can rip someone off one time. But we can't build a whole system of people ripping everyone off because that value has got to come from somewhere. Exactly. And that's another thing to take here is that it is not – Marx is not trying to paint – well, whether he believes it or not is one thing. But in building his logical foundation, he is not just painting out – you know, capitalists or whatever as crooks, as thieves, as anything like that, as, as their, their con. He's going to play in capitalism's fun little box that they created, that Ricardo and Smith and all that. So no, let's assume your system is perfect. Let's assume it's exactly what you say it is. Here are the internal contradictions to that. In a perfect world of your system, this is what's happening. Yeah, and I mean, that's, that's really a great thing he does. He says, here, we're not even going to break a single rule. Everyone's going to follow the rules. This is going to work perfectly. How can this work? In order for this to work, you have to take something and you have to make value on the second exchange. And on its face, that kind of seems insane. When you break it down to its logical base, that's kind of crazy because it literally is, if you take out the middleman, it's, I took 100 pounds and I turned it into 110 pounds. Yeah. And we'll say dollars for-, for We'll this. say dollars. I'm this sorry. Uses, I'm, no, I'm this reading it off the England, screen. Yeah, I know. It pounds for, is there. A dollars. Yeah. But I, I money- is the only thing like that that can just suddenly have more value. My cow can't suddenly become a super cow, and and all of a sudden it's worth an extra 10% of a cow. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could, like, buff him up on some steroids and stuff like that, and he could get, like, real real swole, but I don't... (laughs) <laughs> I don't think that makes him inherently a more valuable cow. Well, and you're not just doing that once. You're you're a capitalist. You you want this M to grow. Oh yeah. So you're going M to M prime, M prime to M prime prime, M prime prime to M prime prime prime, uh-huh. bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, you can't just keep swindling people. You know, no. you're gonna. Yeah, I mean, you're Bernie Madoff tried it. It, it. You apparently the cap is like twenty something billion, and then apparently that <laughs> that whole system falls apart. Yeah, I mean, there's been, I don't know how many stories in capitalism where people try to swindle stuff and then it catches up to them. Yep. Well, you can't have an entire system of people doing that when not only do you have these cases that stick out where you go, oh, they're trying to swindle people. They wouldn't stick out like a sore thumb if that was the case. And you wouldn't have all these times where all those cases happen and they always fail. The system would have long crumbled, okay? And it's, I mean, you'll get to, to it later where Marx <laughs> doesn't think this is a super sustainable system. Mm-hmm. But yeah. that, that's a whole different story. Yeah. There's a difference between capitalism and a night in Vegas. Exactly. And that's so. and that's the other is is the other in an interesting point. Again, I, I may be because the other trick to this is is that while we're we're trying to go through it in chapter format, we're really kind of chunking this into into the ideas because I think that's an easier way to understand it. And mm-hmm. one of the interesting things you get to here is when you're talking about all these commodities, uh, there's a there's a certain theoretical limit on the amount of commodities 
are on the use value of a commodity that you can have. You, you can only have so many goats. You can only have so many cars, so many pants. So when it comes to accumulating this social power and this, 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 this clout, money is the only thing that has no limit. There is no limit on the amount of money. There's no reason you would ever cap yourself. And that is planting the seeds of what is wrong. The system only works if it keeps expanding. Yeah, this was actually at the end of chapter four. It says the oops, excuse, the inextinguishable passion for gain, the Ari Sacra fames will always lead capitalist. And that comes from the principles of political economy. It's from McCulloch. And he says this view, of course, does not prevent the same McCulloch and others of his kidney when in theoretical difficulties, such, for example, as the question of overproduction, from transferring the same capitalist into a moral citizen whose sole concern is for use values and who even develops an unsatiable hunger for boots, hats, eggs, calico, and other extremely familiar sorts of use value. He's mocking him. You know, I mean, the capitalist wants to gain, 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 gain. And, you know, the capitalist doesn't, he uses eggs. And I, I think of Cool Hand Luke when he had the 50 hard-boiled egg. The, the capitalist is not trying to break Cool Hand Luke's, you know, 50 hard-boiled egg record in shorter and shorter and shorter time periods in between until he just dies of cholesterol explosion. He's wanting to accumulate this limitless power of money. So this universal commodity obviously has some power, and there's some reason to accumulate it. And so what you have is you got to remember this is an MC and a CM exchange, okay? Mm -hmm. And the point of the MC exchange is always a use value. So if you're going from M to M prime and you can't do that straight on exchange value and the MC part of that MCM exchange is meant to have a use value, you have to think of something that's not going to lose its exchange value when you use it. Mm -hmm. and is going to have a use value that gains you exchange value. And that takes a very, very, very unique commodity. And we'll touch on that when we get to that point. Yep. But that he kind of leaves a little cliffhanger there. Yeah, I was about to say. And he, that's... He needs a, you need a commodity that, in one sense, can exchange itself for equal value again, mm -hmm. and for another sense, can create exchange value. And doesn't okay. use itself up. You don't, by, by exchanging it, you don't, you don't yeah. lose it. You can keep doing that yeah. over and, and over. And remember, that's a congealed total. So if, yes. you, go, if you go from 100, uh, you, you take 100 dollars and you get a hundred dollar commodity and you turn it into hundred ten dollars because its use value has gained value it doesn't mean its use has to gain you exactly those ten dollars you can use up twenty dollars of its use value mm -hmm. and then have uh, twenty dollars of exchange value in use and then have it make thirty dollars you know as long as you're net gaining but you still need a special commodity that creates exchange value and he went in dire details in chapter one and two what commodity are you going to do that with? There is none. There is none. There is so, nothing. Yeah. Gold doesn't yeah. make more gold. It doesn't. It just doesn't work that way. Which, again, is fun. Again, first time reading through this is fun. It's like, okay, where are we going? <laughs> what, what are you talking about here? Yeah. So I think with that, we're a little ready to, because we're kind of bleeding into it. Yeah. To, to, to go into Chapter 5. 100%. Okay? Let's go. Um, now, in Chapter 5, he describes capitalists as a, and, and these are the people that want the MCM exchange as a capitalist. Mm -hmm. um, a capitalist acts as a conduit between buyers who would not buy from each other directly. They're totally alienated from each other. They mean nothing to each other. So he started in the first chapter about talking about being alienated from their labor. Yep. Okay. These buyers are totally alienated from each other. 
you're not going to go and make a bunch of spray foam cans in a factory and then go home and buy chicken and then go, man, the guy who made this chicken's really going to appreciate that foam I made. You're going to go, I bought some chicken. I need to cook it up. Exactly. <laughs> so they're going to be totally alienated. You're not you're not in a in a little commune society where you you know everyone's using everybody else's labor. You, yeah. the, the capitalist is that great middleman that that's moving everything in between. Yeah, and so that makes it what we talked about earlier: things being naked exchanges. The money is just going to be this universal center, so that two people who don't want to exchange something at all can wind up exchanging through this middleman and never know what happened. Yep. Okay. Never know what even happened. Or it can be three people doing, you know, exchanges, and this this middleman can make two MCM exchanges. Whatever it is, he can do this. And so what you have to do is you start having to look at things in the mass. And this is where he talks about Chapter 5. He brought up that, that value was congealed labor, okay? Socially necessary labor. If someone else could do it themselves, you know, why would you pay for it? You don't pay to go to a restaurant so you can cook, you know? Yep. I mean, why... You, you pay for socially necessary labor. And the value is the average social necessary labor because someone else then can replace that labor if it's not the average labor. Mm-hmm. And so there there would be no value. You may overpay for something, but there'd be no value. And this is a chapter where it gets in, you can overpay, you can underpay, you can get a good deal, you can get a bad deal, but there's still the same amount of value in the system. Yeah, and the market is, that's that's kind of by its nature what this is going to do because there can be... If you go, I believe this is the chapter where he's talking about, you could go into the market and, oh, God, there's too many sellers today. Well, the price of this item, you know, the use value hasn't changed. I know that's changed, but it's still the price is going to fluctuate because you have this universal equivalent. You're not directly exchanging. So factors all the time in the system are going to cause you to pay more than it's worth, less than it's worth at its true value kind of all the time. It's kind of baked into the system. Yeah, and, and of course, something he alluded to earlier is if if you know, everybody's getting this square deal and they're paying less for this thing, that means its value's really dropped and the prices are going to catch up to it. So a price is just an assumed or a guessed yeah. value. It's you're okay. slapping your best idea of what, okay, I have no idea, what the, I can't know what this thing's value is until I take it to the market and someone tells me what it's worth to them. So I guess I put a price on and that price will adjust itself. Through. Right, and I don't remember before or after this chapter, but a capitalist can kind of do play that game a little bit too, yeah. where they go, hey, you know, I can get you this this thing that's a value of 200 and I I only pay... Oh, no, it is in a later chapter. That's what I mean. We'll come back to that. We'll come back. We'll come back to that. Cliffhangers. Okay, cliffhangers. All right, so let's start with some highlighted pieces, because this is how I was going to organize before. Okay. Um, some excerpts. So, chapter five, the first thing it says, This inversion has no existence for two out of the three persons transact the business altogether. A capitalist, I buy commodities from A to sell them again to B. But as B is a simple owner of commodities, I sell them to B and then purchase fresh ones from A. A and B see no difference between the two transactions. They're merely buyers and sellers. I am opposed to A only as the buyer and B only as the seller, to only to the one only as money, to the other only as commodities, and to neither of them as a capital or a capitalist, as a representative of anything more than money or commodities, or that can produce the effect beyond what money and commodities can. So that was talking about the alienation, and it makes an extremely good point. You don't sit there in the middle of capitalism and think, I'm participating in capitalism. <laughs> you think, I'm buying stuff. It's... 
<laughs> or I'm making money. Yeah, that yeah, that is very. I, I very rarely on Black Friday I'm going. I, I think actually that is the one day of the year I do very blatantly <laughs> acknowledge the fact that I am participating in capitalism. Yeah, but you kind of you kind of float through things like a zombie because you're alienated from it. The system designs that away from you. So we'll get into later chapters about what this value means to you and what this commodity that makes this M prime means to you and what your role in society is. And this is just kind of a setup for why you don't see that because Marx, and, and I, I, I think I might have brought it up last time, but if you teach people Marx, the poorer they are and the, hard, and the more marginalized they are, the more they read Marx and go, oh, yeah, duh, why are you even telling me this? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. And the, the higher up they are, you know, you teach these, like, college grad students and these, these middle managers and stuff, and they're like, this is just some haywire out there concept. Yeah. Uh, because he's just describing the way things are in extremely explicit detail and then giving, uh, he'll get to an action plan about that too. Um, But basically, these are things that you don't see. So when you say, oh, duh, it's not because you're like, why am I reading this? It's because you're like, why didn't I think of this until he told me? Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is this alienation. Which is intentional. What Marx would contend. It is absolutely intentionally done. Yes. To, to take you a step to put take you out of the system so you're not looking at the yeah but pay just, no attention to the man just remember that a lot of the intentional things in capitalism they're very intentional by the ruling class they're kind of set it and forget it so when people think about things sounding conspiratorial or things like that you know I mean obviously there's there's CIA's and FBI's that have these operations and the documents link and then you go oh yeah no those people I thought are paranoid they they were right. They really were, you know, hunting down the Fred Hamptons of the world mm-hmm. and, and assassinating the, the Central African leaders. Uh, but but it's not like there's just some guys with their hands, you know, on the levers. No. Um, those, even those, those uh, quote-unquote deep state guys are, you know, acting in the interest of a class. These guys are just, they're encouraged to do this, they internalize this, and then they think normally. When people are on, like the news, and they say something, and the more you learn, you're like, oh, that's horrible. How can someone think that? Well, they're trained to think that every day. So they're obviously lying in major ways that harm people, but they're not lying because they go, oh, I want to be a liar, and I'm going to get them people with my, 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 you know, plots. Well, now, Fox (laughs) News exists, so there are a couple people that are probably doing that, but general, your local news probably don't think that they're giant representatives of the... Yeah, they, like, the local news don't think, hey, you know, I'm I'm 24-hour copaganda. They just think, oh, this is my resource. This is the way I'm reporting. This is how I do it, because this this is how they train me to do it in journalism school, and this is is what we do. That's right. So there is some set it and forget it. So I, you know, it's very much on purpose, but it's not like everybody mapped out every detail. Things just... They work out extremely well because this is a system that empowers the already powerful. But we're kind of jumping ahead with that a yeah, little bit. Yep. I just wanted to touch on the alienation. Every once in a while you need it. Yeah. Every you need, once to, you need, you need to see what we're go- where we're going here. Yeah. Um, so he was talking about, let's see, A A's point of view and B's point of view. And he says, inversion, therefore, the order of succession does not take place outside the sphere of simple circulation of commodities. We must rather look to find out where this M is getting value, whether this is in simple circulation or anything permitting an expansion of the value that enters in a circulation and consequently a creation of surplus value. So he's saying, I'm digging in. I'm going to make absolute sure there is nothing in the exchange that's going to do this. And that's what chapter five is. Chapter five is, I got to find out what this M prime is and I got to 
double check it's not already building some yeah. double check I'm not looking into something. now also you leave out one of the more important parts that chapter 5 is also where he throws shade at every other economist in the history of time basically <laughs> uh, because while he's double checking to make sure that we haven't missed things he is throwing just twitter level barbs at everybody in his way uh, Condillac gets a real good thorough roasting at certain points throughout here um, but again, just saying, you're basically like what there, you exchange two things. And then by that exchange, the one gained extra value. No, that's stupid. You, it doesn't work that way. And you know it. So why are you saying it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was saying something about, let's see, money of account. So money of account serves expressive value commodities by their price, but is not itself a shape of hard cash confronted with them. So as far as regards the use value, it's clear that both parties may gain some advantage. Both part with goods that as use values have no service to them and receive others that they can make use of. Okay, so that's saying that if you're buying something, obviously you're going to make the action to buy something because that over there is going to matter more to you. And they're going to do the same thing. Okay, even in the CM, that money is going to mean more to them because now, bam, I get the universal power. Whereas that cow may mean more to me. I need that beef now. I, I can't eat my money. <laughs> you know. Have, you, have we tried? I mean, there may be yeah, some. Yeah, I'm sure there's people that, people that eat gold. Touche. <laughs> Touche, Donald Trump. But, yeah. But, um, you know, at some point, obvi- and, and, and so much of this is just like, no duh, you know, because he's just like, how could these guys did these entire elaborate set of theories, this entire, like, theory of liberalism and they just skip this obvious crap and and a lot of it is not stuff that you go aha because your mind is trained to absorb when you learn yep. you just read and go yes uh-huh yes and then that's in your head because it's the first thing you learn it's, it's how your brain works as a survival technique but marx goes well wait a minute that's really stupid look right here this is the obvious reason that's stupid and so that was the uh, the money of exchange part. Mm-hmm. Um, we also get into again things we've already touched on, but this is this is the chapter where he in depth explains, hey, uh, the concept of one person swindling another person does not explain surplus value either. Um, both parties, you know, swindling does not increase the value of something. You still have the same values you started with. That that's not your answer, so don't say it is. There's a fun example about Rome and paying tribute to Rome in there, which was interesting. There's also another weird anti-Semitic reference, but we'll just we'll gloss over that one because <laughs> we're going with we're, Marx. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Cute. Good work, Carl. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, but that that's a good point that he brings that up. You know, if you swindle someone, so like there's a total value of 100. You have something value of 60, and I have something value of 40. And we exchange it, so it's like 50-50. Well, you lost 10, I gained 10, right? That's a 20, it's a 20 X measurement value swing for me. There's still a value of 100. What am I gonna, I turn around and swindle the next person? I'm, you know, maybe I make, make more, but there's no more value in the system. There's gotta be more value in the system somewhere you know yeah or you can't get to your emperor right i mean you're just robbing peter to pay paul yep and there is a certain amount of the he concedes there's a certain amount of that in the system oh yeah but it doesn't explain how the system perpetuates itself and Mm -hmm. how the system can keep going this little perpetual motion machine that is capitalism yeah um he also talks about price Uh, a lot of people think about price being value and he says the value of a commodity is expressed in its price before it goes into circulation and is therefore a precedent condition of circulation not a result so they that's kind of digging in the supply and demand. Yeah. The supply and demand says, you know, I mean, the price of things will adjust. And he, he kind of gets into supply and demand, and he says that 
um, you know, supply and demand is going to have an equilibrium somewhere. Mm-hmm. And that's where you find something's true value. And I think that's a Ricardo thing. Yes. it's a Well, and it's an ingrained part of all capitalism is that there's the, the concept of equilibrium price is... Yeah. There, you know, yes, there can be wild fluctuate. You know, the Beanie Baby market has its fun ups and downs. Um, you know, with these wild, you know, I could sell one for ten thousand, but is that its equal? Is that the price that we all agree at the end when sane bodies come together? Is that the real price of the thing? Um, yeah, and that's what he says. If supply and demand equilibrium is its real value, then you're saying at real value, there's no value added to the system. I mean, this this is still missing. We're still searching for this. Mm-hmm. We're digging and digging and digging. But uh, even in price, you know, as it is, right? Price is not this, you, you don't go out and you say, hmm, the demand is 80 and the mm-hmm. supply is 20. So we're going to adjust the price this way. You're going to go, oh my God, this isn't selling. Maybe I'll lower it. Okay, oh man, there's a hurricane. Water's $100. Right, right. So you're kind of guessworking with that and the supply and demand can affect it. But you're not actually going to get that. It's not going to sway the price. You're going to try to prospect. You're going to try to put it out there. And you're going to come to the market with a price. Mm-hmm. Even when you haggle, you put out your first price. And then you put out your hardline, you know, walk away price, right? You don't go out there and go, oh, what's the value? Check mark. Okay, mm-hmm. go. You know, no one has this magical value ticker. You're putting out a price and the market is going to reflect the price in circulation. Which also kind of helps explain where the swindler, you know... It- a swindler eventually will get found out, and we have other options, so we could theoretically go to somebody else. So, again, just kind of baked in fun time. And, again, fun fun common arguments that, that get made in the face of cap. Oh, well, you know, bad companies won't continue to exist. You could just go to another company that's not bad. That's fine. The market, yay, it works. Um, but that's that's getting a little further along. Yeah. But, but yeah, moving on. Oh, he also digs at uh, Condillac. Because Condillac oh, yeah. was uh, saying that you only exchange things that are just superfluous for you. So, like, you know, I need to eat 40 eggs. My chicken made 50 eggs, so now I can sell the other 10. Yeah. Well, how the hell are you going to get your water? You know, I mean, and he calls this really childish. childish. Yeah, that's, that's what I was saying. The, the Twitter burns were solid in this chapter. Oh, yeah. So, and Marx is no stranger to burns if you read some of his shorter work. But this this is kind of razzy. It's a good chapter. But he says, you see in this passage how Condillac not only confuses use value with exchange value, but in a really childish manner, assumes that in a society in which the production of commodities is well-developed, each producer produces his own means of subsistence and throws into circulation only excess over his own requirements. Yeah. Yeah, now that that's kind of silly because not only are you going to have to have people sitting there that are going to magically possess value for nothing to buy up your commodities while everybody else just produces what they need, but, I mean, that means this entirely well-developed society where everybody has their own functional role. Everybody does everything. You're your own sewer system, your own cook, your own farmer, your own carpenter. Yeah. Well, that's not true. That's just not that's, true. It's, it's, yeah, it's factually just, I mean, and that's one of the ones where it's just common sense. It's like, no, I, I'm not, I, we're not all independent, self-sustaining economies that just, you know, the, the, oh, I put in 10 hours of overtime this week, so I have some extra things to sell. Yay. Yeah. Uh, he, he ties back commodities um, for equal exchange. He is not going to put value into something. He says, if commodities are commodities and money of equal exchange value and consequential equivalents are exchanged, it is plain that no one abstracts more value from than he throws into circulation. There is no creation of surplus value, and in normal form, the circulation of commodities demands exchange of equivalents. So that means other than the swindling, and of course this way is in the market, just in its normal yeah. chugging along, everything's running smooth, my alternator's not breaking down capitalism, things are going to be equal exchanges. Okay. So then he says the 
creation of surplus value, therefore the conversion of money into capital, can consequently be explained neither on the assumption that commodities are sold above their value nor that they are bought below their value. In relation to circulation, producers and consumers meet only as buyer and sellers. The sur surplus value required by the product has its origin in the fact that consumers pay for commodities more than their value is only to say, in other words, the owner of commodity possesses, as a seller, the privilege of selling too dear. <laughs> Which is saying, like, you know, only sellers. It's it's always a seller's market. Mm -hmm. And then he gets into, to be consistent then, upholders the delusion that surplus value has its origin, the nominal rise of prices, and the privilege which the seller has selling too dear, must assume the existence of a class that not only buys and does not sell, only consumes... Or, yeah, that only buys and does not sell, only consumes and does not produce. Okay? And uh, this is where he gets into the Roman stuff, you know? Yeah. I mean, they, you, they're they only going to take, 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 take in the Roman tribute, and they're saying it's never going to come back around. Well, that's going to come back around in trade. Yep. Uh, he says, The towns of Asia Minor thus paid a yearly money tribute to ancient Rome. With this money, Rome purchased for them the commodities and purchased them too dear. Provincials cheated the Romans and thus got back from their conquerors in the course of trade a portion of tribute. Yet for all that, the conqueror, the conquered were really the cheated. Their goods were still paid for with their own money. That is not the way to get rich or create surplus value. Nope. And then later on he puts, he may be clever enough to get the advantage of B or C without being able to retaliate. A sells wine worth 40 pounds to B, obtains an exchange from the value of 50 pounds. A has converted 40 and 50 pounds, made more money out of less, and converted his commodities into capital. Let us examine a little more closely, therefore. Before the exchange, we had 40 pounds worth of wine in the hands of A and 50 pounds worth of corn in those of B, a total value of 90 pounds. After the exchange, we still have the same value of 90 pounds. The value in circulation is not increased by one iota. It is only distributed differently between A and B. What is the loss of value to B is surplus to A. What is minus to one is plus to the other. The same change would have taken place if A, without the formality of an exchange, had directly stolen 10 pounds from B. And you don't create value by stealing. Well, I mean, again, back to the Ponzi scheme. I mean, we've got options. We've got, we've got, we've got ways. But, but yeah. no, you're not actually creating value in, in yeah. the Marxian sense of the word. Uh, he also gets into usury. Now, people don't use this term much anymore. No, they don't. Because we want to pretend it doesn't happen because we like our capitalist overlords, apparently. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing. I am, I am wearing. You're wearing a... I am Okay. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's... Yeah. Usury is... A, it used to... You would go back... And it, it is funny to watch the, the evolution of... Of the, I mean, you you have Aristotle rattling on about how you know people making interest on money is, is the the most contrary to all of nature. You know the you know the 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 Shakespearean critiques of you know depictions of of money lenders and things of that nature, where it's just it is it's abhorrent. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the 1700s rolls around and all of a sudden hey now hey now no, oh no. you you skipped a whole thing about that so and I don't think we've told the people what usury is in case you don't know usury is money lending with interest so when you get a home loan when you get a payday loan that's a that's a pretty blatant example you yeah. get a car loan that stuff's all usury now some people say well you can make a fair interest you know if you only had the amount of inflation that would or the amount of interest that would that would come for inflation for loaning the money, that's only fair. But if you make anything more than that, that's usury. But no one would just loan you money just to make the inflation back because then yeah. they wouldn't make any money. It would make no sense. Yeah, so the point of loaning money in order to get money is 
totally for making money. And usury was something like Jesus turned over the moneylenders' tables mm -hmm. in the courtyard. This was one of the most famous parts of the Bible. It just gets swept under by the capitalists. Boop, 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 boop. And the Catholic Church, until the 1800s, <laughs> considered yeah. usury a deadly sin. While they were selling indulgences? While they were, yeah. <laughs> Hypocrisy is not new to the okay, Catholic Okay, okay, just, take it, just making take it, sure. Take it from the Catholic guy. Just, hypocrisy is not new there. Just making sure. But this was a pretty, pretty major sin. Well, and this one, it's still, I, and I may be this, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I believe it's still in uh, uh, Islam, is still... Mm. Interest is is a, it might it, be I don't I'm I believe sure, it's yeah. a tenant I believe there it's one of the tenets of Islam is that you is interest you cannot make I interest would, I would believe that because um, before Libya got toppled and turned into an open air chattel mm. slave market to make ISIS no, a bunch of money freedom freedom, freedom. Uh, Gaddafi uh, did no interest loans from his bank on yep. to get people homes Yeah I'm pretty uh, sure I'm pretty sure one it's his... one of the it's one of the the foundations of that. That religion. They, they, they codified it and they, they baked it. Yeah, because I know, I mean, Marxist Lenin has long supported Gaddafi, but Gaddafi wasn't a, a Marxist. No. Um, no. But, I mean, his policies went very, very. I mean, if you look at actually most colonized areas, their policies go very, very well with socialism if you go by their old religions. And uh -huh. it was the colonialism that busted that up. And uh, Gaddafi is a, a, a very, very clear example of that you know yeah. if you look at his actual policies the starting homes for families the making sure everyone had housing the no interest loans in the central bank you know i mean those those things fit socialism well and and gaddafi never claimed to be a socialist until you know later on he was they realized they were on his side very very much and started listening more to them yeah so you know when people go back and they'll they'll uh, try to like down on socialists who support gaddafi they'll be like well he said this horrible thing in the 60s and it's like yeah. Well, I mean, he wasn't really a socialist then. He was just doing the best for his people, and he kind of learned. Yep. You know. People grow. It's fun. Yeah. But then uh, Marx even says, so therefore the usurer is most rightly, rightly hated because money itself is the source of his gain. It is not used for the purposes for which it was invented, for it originated for the exchange of commodities, but interest makes out of money more money. And that's again that that it, it gets back to this heart is that no well you didn't work for it that's what this this concept this weird mm -hmm. anti-Semitism that seems to pervade everything where it's like for some reason use you know loan lending money and all of that is is seen as some weird perversion of the system because wait a minute you're not supposed to make money do that yeah and and it it, it goes back in and again Marx does the good the good pointing out of no this is not something that is inherent to a particular religion you weirdos it's inherent to a particular group of people they're called capitalists yeah yeah and uh so but he, he gets into that the usury doesn't create value because no. you know he's he's just taking money and he's extracting more money from you it goes back to the the swindling exchange does the same as if he's stolen those 10 pounds or ten dollars from you so, and he even says, you know, in the course of our investigation, we find both merchants' capital and interest-bearing capital. And merchants' capital is like international trade. Yes. Where we brought up the Roman thing. You have merchants' capital and then industrial capital would yeah. be your two, your two distinctions there. And he says, in interest-bearing capital, derivative forms at the same time, it will become clear why these two forms appear in the course of history before the modern stand of form of capitalism. So we haven't quite gotten into what makes capitalism capitalism. And you'll hear these, like, classic movies like, oh, capitalism's... Natural. It's been around since the dawn of time, and yeah. no, no, it hasn't. Yeah, no, but you've had, you know, I mean, there's even markets in socialist countries, you know. I yeah. mean, oh, and that's another. Happen. It's a very important distinction too that that Marx admits you can have a market-based economy that's not a capitalist economy. Mm -hmm. It is not 
a matter of it's not saying well okay you can't no 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 that that that's not what he's saying there's a very particular thing that makes capitalism capitalism yeah and, and we're so, getting closer to it i promise yes so here right at the end of the chapter and i love he's starting to get into the the our our friend moneybags mm. rhetoric which he'll <laughs> use a lot it says the conversion of money into capital has to be explained on the basis of the laws that regulate the exchange of commodities in such a way that the starting point is the exchange of the equivalents and so he's saying, you know, we're not trying to break the rules or find the cheaters. We nope. mentioned them, but we mentioned even they don't change how the system works. We're just worried about playing within the rules. If this worked right, you know, the, it doesn't matter if it's crony capitalism or, or oh, the capitalism with the, the fiat currency or whatever the terms they want to throw out there, right? You know, and I mean, it's not like those terms are wrong, no. but they don't take away the fact that they're just decorations on capitalism. we got to look within the rules. And he says, our friend Moneybags, who is yet only an embryo capitalist, must buy his commodities at their value, must sell them at their value, and yet at the end of the process must withdraw more value from circulation than he threw into its starting. His development into a full-grown capitalist must take place both within the sphere of circulation and without it. These are the conditions of the problem. And See, this isn't fair because your ver your your translation has him called Mr. Moneybags, and mine just has him called the money owner, and yours is way more fun. Oh yeah, yeah, no, this I've is had way more. Fun. I've read multiple translations. I this is my PDF I, I downloaded because I don't have the footnotes. Oh. My version is missing about seven chapters. Because it just decided they weren't necessary. And well, if you've been through chapter three, yeah, you probably... It, it does skip chapter three. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and it, it puts chapter 31 and 32 at the beginning. <laughs> and then other than that, it's the same. We're going to Tarantino this shit. Yeah, and other than that, it's the same. And it uses Mr. Moneybags. And this is the oh. PDF I downloaded. And it uses Mr. Moneybags. Oh. I've only read Mr. Moneybags. Oh, yeah. Mine is the money owner. Penguin, get... Come on, Penguin Books. You're okay. better than this. Yeah, so just any time you see the money owner, just, he's our old friend Mr. Moneybags. And every time you say that, I am imagining the guy from Monopoly. It's yeah, oh, Monopoly yeah. Man. Yeah, yeah. It's all the Monopoly Man. <laughs> Fantastic. So right. that ends. That is that is chapter five. So we are now getting closer to the the, the nugget here in, in yes. chapter six. Chapter six: the sale and purchase of a labor power. Yeah, and I will say that that we're getting closer to the nugget. I mean, there's there's a lot of nuggets we're gonna get into. Oh, there's nuggets. Uh, oh, there's nuggets this, for days. This is our de this is the chapter that tells you where our magical M prime is coming from, and it also tells you what capitalism is by telling us how that M prime happens. And he gets right into it. He digs straight in. So, and this is sentence like maybe four in the chapter. Mm -hmm. He says the change must therefore take place in the commodity bought by the first act MC, but not in its value for equivalent or exchanged, and the commodity is paid for at its full value. We are therefore forced to the conclusion that the change originates in its use value. As such, of the commodity in its consumption, in order to be able to extract the value from the consumption of a commodity, our friend Moneybags <laughs> must be so lucky to find within the sphere of circulation in the market a commodity whose use value possesses the particular property of being a source of value, whose actual consumption, therefore, itself is an embodiment of labor and consequently a creation of value. The possessor of our money does find in the market a special commodity for that labor, and it's called labor power. And your, does yours have the fun brackets on the like objectification of the the Gangelstung? Oh yeah, the, the German. Why the Germans decided to have forty five mm. 
character words to describe like niche every niche situation in the history of time. I mean, good. I love that. Yeah, have a word for every. They, sentence. I mean, Schadenfreude is a word. Like it makes sense. Like, but every it's, every full sentence you've ever spoken in your life, there's a German word for it. It's, it's but it's God, it's, it's sufferable. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there it is. That's I mean, spoiler alert, gang. That's there's our magic commodity. There's our magic thing. That, yeah. that you can purchase and and keep you know kind of keep the system going. It's it's labor power. Now, labor power is not labor. It is there's there's something specific that Marx means here. Correct. Yeah. So here's our here's our little cliffhanger because this is going to hang on for a few chapters with this labor power. People are going to go, well, what the hell is labor power? Because remember, this is alienated. You don't think about it. You don't think about, oh, I'm selling my labor power and 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 giving my labor now. You know, you're just thinking I'm going to work. Mm-hmm. So he says, by labor power, capacity for labor is to be understood the aggregate of those mental and physical capabilities of use of a human being, which he exercises whenever he produces a use value of any description. So he's saying, you know, anytime you're selling your labor, you're really selling your labor power. Okay. Mm-hmm. But he still hasn't really defined what makes them different. He, he has not. Yeah. So then he comes in and he says the exchange of commodities in of itself implies no other relations of dependence rather than ones which result from its own nature. On this assumption, labor power could appear on the market as a commodity only if so far as its possessor, the individual whose labor power it is, offers it for sale or sells it as a commodity. In order that he may be able to do this, he must have it at his disposal, must be untrammeled owner of his capacity for labor, of his person. He's the owner of the money, meet in the market, and deal with each other on the basis of equal rights, with the difference alone that one is a buyer and one is a seller, and both therefore equal in the eyes of the law. This continuance relation demands that the owner of the labor power should sell only for a definite period, for if he were to sell it rump and stump once and for all, he would be selling himself, converting himself from a free man to a slave, from an owner of a commodity to a commodity, he must constantly look upon his power and his own property, his own commodity, as he can only do it by placing at the disposal of the buyer temporarily for a definite period of time, and by this means alone, he can avoid renouncing his rights and ownership over it. So that's really, really wordy, but there is some clear stuff. In it there. is very clear, and it's the again, this is where we highlight we're not talking about slavery. Slavery is not encompassed within. Yes. This method of capital, you can't say that, that a, a slaveholder was not a capitalist in that way. He wasn't purchasing labor power from slaves. Like maybe he was like 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 doing some weird four dimensional chess of labor power buying, but no. Um, this that it, it's a free person who, for a limited period of time, is going to sell. I think probably the most clear They're sell themselves. You're really you're selling yourself for a limited period of time, but you're selling yourself for a limited period of time. To do labor. So, so the most, the most basic, logical person, the way to understand this, the most common way you would see this is you drive to the Home Depot, and there's a truck full of gentlemen saying, "I would like to work today, <laughs> and I, I need four of you to hop in my truck and let's go do some work and let's go." That that's a thing that exists in the world still. Yeah, uh, that was pretty major in the Industrial Revolution. I mean, that was laid out. If you ever read The Jungle, they laid out the <laughs> lines of people waiting for work. Uh-huh. That really happened. I mean, that that book is a fiction, yep. but that book isn't a fiction like, you know, a science fiction from the future. It's not even a fiction that poses a nonfiction with a lie like the Fountainhead or something. It's a fiction that, that that you know, will pose as a, as a nonfiction in the sense that it describes something by being very, very real. There's a lot of documented evidence that, that you know, everything in The Jungle could have... Absolutely happened. Temp agencies are a very common 
form of it today. You see yeah. it today all the time. Plug it, kind of plug and play, indispo. You know, at, this job is so. You know, you know, we can plug literally almost any human being into this with no training, no nothing. And I mean, I did it a couple different times in transition jobs. You know, I showed up at a place and they were like, "Okay, you're going to this factory and you're going to do this for eight hours." I'm like, "No, no yeah." No, they're like, "No, just stand here and do that thing for eight hours." I, I'm in software engineering, and I'm one of the few industries where you essentially have a, a recruiter, which is a, a, a it's a less fancy name for an agent, but recruiters, agents, all those pimps. That's one, <laughs> pimps. That's one of the rare times where you buy someone else's labor power. As, as a non-capitalist, because they're out there to sell your labor power. So they're your seller. They're your salesperson for your labor power is really what they are. So mm-hmm. you go to these temp agencies, you go to this recruiter, you say, hey, sell my labor power. Find me a buyer for my labor power yeah. is really, really what you're doing. Now, it's very clear that he says, you know, you are selling your labor, right? So everyone is within their rights. No one has violated rights here. And that's mm-hmm. a very, very important foundation. We're not shanghaiing people into labor. Yeah. And we're, we're going to need that that foundation for rights it's a very very marxist thing that no one has violated rights when you go to work because marx is going to get into i mean rights are important but like a right to work maybe i don't know (laughs) oh no on prop a yeah but uh but we're going to get into like you know how you can't just dogmatic and and again he's a materialist he's not an idealist so you can't just go oh the dogma this rights 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 and he's marx is a little skeptical on rights being an end-all be-all rather than a foundation yeah. Okay, and so he says, this is its rights. And when we get into the working day in a few chapters, that's going to be very, very clear. No one has violated his rights, but the capitalist job is to say, hey, I've bought your labor. You, you know, Now I have eight hours of you. You've completely given yourself up. I'm here to take your eight hours and to make value. Yep. Okay, and I need to do that. And so and he also says that you can't have conflicts, okay? You have to be abled. You know, um, obviously, you know, there's disabled people in this world. There's also able people that just want to have certain skills. And you can't, you know, I mean, if you have two jobs, you can't have conflicts with the schedule. This is all pretty duh stuff, right? And you the know? and in this case, also, the, the, the other distinction I think he was making, correct me if I'm wrong, was that the, while the, the laborer ha- is giving up, is coming to it free from, I'm able to work, I'm able to do this, I'm giving you my labor, the... The capitalist has to, there is something that he has to provide in this equation as well. Yeah. It's not just a pure, I'm buying your labor, go do this thing for me. It, he has the the fun, I mean, I guess for, for lack of a better word, spoiler alerts on, on fun Marxist terms. Yeah. He, he has to have the means of production. Yeah, uh, we're, we're, yeah, we're getting a little ahead there, but I don't mind getting ahead because this is something you you should start stringing together. Yes. As we say, you know, we talked about like, why would you buy sell your money to make money if you weren't making more money? Why would you buy a commodity if you don't need it? There's a lot of well does, right? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, why would you sell your labor power to someone if you can just go out and do the work? He has to have something that's preventing you from doing the work because you don't have it, and he's got it, and now he's going to give it to you. And the, not, not give it to you, but let you use it for in exchange for the labor for power. For your labor. And it's and that's examples that Marx is giving. Uh, no boots can be made without leather. Uh, you, you know, you, you, He also requires the means of subsistence. Nobody, mm. not even a practitioner, practitioner of a German word that nobody cares about, can live on the products of the future or on use values whose productions have not yet been completed. Just as on the first day of his appearance on the world stage, man must still consume every day before and while he produces. So if products are produced as commodities, they must be sold after they have been produced and they can only satisfy the producer's need after they have been sold. The time necessary for the sale must be counted as well as the time for production. So again, laborers in this case are actually kind of four 
advancing their, in the same way that a, that a, a lender would advance their money. You're kind of advancing your labor because in most instances that they're talking about here, you're not getting paid and then going to work. It's you do your work for a certain amount of time, and then at the end of that time, I will pay you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it's important that he talks about the means of subsistence because we talked about, you know, I mean, I have this skill to make boots, but I don't have any leather. You have the leather, so now I have to sell you my labor power. Well, now, I don't just get out, go out and sell all those boots. They're selling the boots. They're making all the money. So mm-hmm. what the hell did I get? Well, I got the means of subsistence. You know, and that's what I have to have. So socially, and, and he'll get into socially necessary um, value for the the labor. You know, I mean, there's there's skills, and the skills can make the labor itself more valuable. Yeah. Uh, but it's only more valuable because that skill allows it to produce more. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is it's what's socially necessary for that labor. And we- so you're selling your labor power. For, a social for the socially necessary amount of time for whatever that skill is. If you mm-hmm. weren't a good fit for that job, yeah. you would not be getting paid. Again, in the same way that I cannot go, you know, you can pay me and you this same amount of money to do the same software job for eight hours. Mm-hmm. You're going to do it far more effectively than I am because I have no fucking clue what I'm doing. So, again, right. that they wouldn't hire me for that job because I don't have the particular set of skills that make that useful. Right, but there's not a lot of programmers, too. So they need to know what the average programmer would, would make in order to know what to pay me, and they need to include in there subsistence. Now, I'm going to be worried about my subsistence, me, not a ha-ha, because I'm selling my labor power. But what he's got into is the capitalist doesn't really need me specifically. He needs a laborer. He's alienated from me. So he needs to be able to buy labor power at a value dictated by the means of subsistence of the entire class of laborers, of all the people that don't have this magical capital. Yep. Okay. And that's that's a really big deal if you think about it. Well, it's it like, is. They don't care about my survival. They just no. care that there's enough workers alive. And that's kind of scary. That there's enough workers alive, and that there's a that there's a magic number essentially that dictates. It's sort of like the pop the I mean the poverty line, for lack of a better word. The yeah. what is what would I have to, you know depending on how you know as your skill goes up, there's an amount that goes up. But at a certain level, it's I have to pay you enough to keep you alive because if I don't you'll die, and then I don't have labor. Now, there's also the fact that if I don't, you might go somewhere else because someone else might pay you more. But at the end of the day, they're going to try and get that number to the lowest possible number, and the lowest possible number is what keeps you from dying. Yeah, and and we're going to get into a little more in the, the, the labor power and the exchange, but that's what I was kind of alluding to where he was talking about, you know, everyone's within their rights, right? Mm-hmm. I'm within my rights to sell my labor. You're within your rights to, to buy the labor and make all the money you want. But... We're going to have some conflicts in spite of that. The rights don't cover those conflicts. And we're going to get into that. There's some uh, chapters about the working day and stuff. We'll really get into that. But for right now, we'll just kind of like allude to that. Allude to it. (laughs) Again, cliffhangers, cliffhangers on cliffhangers. The book is like a thousand something pages long, people. There's going to be cliffhangers. All right. Uh, So first, he's going to talk about freedom, right? The free labor. And he's this is really, really mocky when he's doing that. He says, free in the double sense. As a free man can dispose of his labor power and his own commodity. And on the other hand, he has no other commodity for sale and is short of everything necessary for the real labor power. So he's saying, free in the sense that I can sell you my labor, and free in the sense of I'm free from any ability to do anything else with my life. I am uh. stuck subordinating to you. Yep. It is just, that is, that is Marx, hard. Marx does some of the best ter- taking the word freedom that is sort of fetishized by some people and, and kind of exposing it for what it is at a certain level, because freedom only goes so far. It, it when really you're does. When you, you have the freedom to 
okay, well, my freedom is I can work for whatever you're offering to pay me, or I can starve to death. Yeah. Those are my options. <laughs> well, freedom! Freedom's all, like, it, again, right. there, there's a certain... As he's saying, Jesus, you have the freedom to work, uh huh, or you have the freedom to not have any other opportunities to be t- tied down from. Exactly. You're free to just be the worker, know you're the worker, do it. It's, and it's, again, <laughs> it's where the, the moral limits of uh, utilitarianism runs into the same issue of, of it's a, it seems good, and then, wait a minute, no, no, wait a minute, hold on, oh, God, no. Yeah. And then he's talked about uh, the, uh, buyer in the market of the labor and he's saying we cling to the fact theoretically and he does practically one thing however is clear nature does not produce on one side owners of money or commodities and on the other side men possessing nothing but their own labor power yep. this relation has no natural basis neither is it a social basis that one is common in all historical periods it is clearly the result of past historical development the product of many economic revolutions, yeah. of extinction of a whole series of older forms of social production. And this is where we're starting to get into, again, when it all kind of blurs, so so correct me if I'm g- jumping ahead a little bit, but this is where, you're, again, this is one of, I think, to me, the most... I, I, the most eye-opening part of, of Marx. Because it it's a very basic statement that it's sad that I didn't, I, I had, you know, you have, it hadn't really been elucidated for me until I got into this. And it's that this system did not come up overnight. Yeah. This, this, this style, there's been a lot of, and again, there's been, there's, there are some radical shifts within the system. You know, we go from the, you know, feudal, we overthrow feudalism and landed gentry and, mm-hmm. and lords and, and all of the, unless you live in England. And I mean, there's revolutions and stuff like there's that. There's revolutions and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, this accumulation is essentially a linear path that you can track through generate through families, through generations of, of there was nothing special, there was nothing unique. There was just they happened to have this one thing that people needed yeah. and have then therefore been able to kind of snowball that into ad infinitum. Oh yeah, and, and we'll get into how you know, I mean these past revolutions make essentially two portions of the ruling class. I think Marx does like 11 or 12 class strata but there's only like like there's petty bourgeois okay. there's bourgeoisie there's yeah. the the aristoc- aristocracy there's a rigid and, and uh, but what he really gets into is there's two two essential classes that matter okay there's the people that own bourgeois and there's the people that are owned proletariat yeah, he had a bourgeois proletariat. <laughs> For the record, again, I've never gotten all the way. I have never read this book all the way through, so, so I, I I'm trying to make we, sure I hit 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 hard enough. We there will we get go. into later what he talks about because he he really uses England as an example because he's in England when he wrote. Well, this. And it's a, it's, and, it was the it was the United States of the time. It was the yeah. one example they used for everything. Yeah, so uh, we'll get into like some English law and some conflicts that some ruling class have and how they they make you know, inroads with uh, certain people from the proletariat at times. But just to kind of allude, Marx is very big on dialectic materialistic history, okay? These were the the means, and this moves on. I think it talked about earlier, you know, no different than the the, the slave and the slave owner of past conquered lands and the feudal lord and the serfs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have these conflicts of these classes, and the classes overturn things in a revolution and overturn things in a revolution. And so... We're a long way from it, and we're going to have a lot to read before we get there. Yeah. But just in case um, you're someone who's getting into this and you've gotten to where you're interested in capital, where you're listening to this and hopefully reading along, and you're still kind of leery because you've heard terms like 
dictatorship of the proletariat. And that stuff <laughs> sounds kind of scary because what you heard in your head from what these socialism countries oh, are. Yeah. Um, realize that a dictatorship or proletariat is not a dictatorship. It's a democracy, yeah. and it's a democracy based on power struggle, and this is going to start to reveal why that's necessary as we get into those past power struggles, because even socialist countries don't pop up overnight. You know, They had this Marxist theory. They're still the end of history. Um, and, and Marx gets into that a little bit where, you know, when he's saying that this is the end of history, because... He even mentioned the mercantile lesson stuff in the, the past here. Yep. These liberals didn't just write this theory in the 17 and 1800s and people go, oh, we should do this. They wrote this theory about 100 years after this type of capitalism had developed Already. and was spreading. And, and you, needed to, you needed to name it. You needed to identify it. Yeah. You needed to and, and we classify call it. it. We call it capitalism because Marx really, you know pushed that with the term, but yeah. it, it was liberalism. The theory is liberalism. liberalism. So these conservatives or these these libertarians or whatever, they're all liberals. They're it, just different brands of liberals. Exactly. They're reactionary liberals or they're they're you know liberal liberals, but they're all liberals. Yes. You know, so you don't you know, Republicans are liberals, Democrats are liberals. <laughs> liberals. They're all liberals. They're just different brands of it. So um, now we're also talking because we're, we're still talking about yes, this labor and we're still we're, we're, we're getting off we're going to get again. It's important. That's that's kind of the nature of this. Is this is not. If you wanted to just read the book, you would just read the book. The whole point of this is to kind of try and keep it. Yeah. Keep it relevant and keep it keep it interesting. So we're talking about again labor power and how do we determine? So a good this particular commodity labor power must now be examined more closely. Okay, Carl, let's examine. Yeah. Um, so like all other commodities, it has a value. How is that value determined? Labor power is determined, as in the case of every other commodity, by the labor time necessary for the production. And, and so now, we're, th this is kind of an Ouroboros for me. I'm tr still trying to get my head into that because, wait, the labor, amount of labor needed to make the labor, oh God, oh God, it's eating its tail, oh God, uh, for the production and consequently also the reproduction of this specific article. Insofar as it has value, it represents no more than a definite quantity of the average social labor objectified in it. Yeah. Labor power exists only as a capacity of the living individual. Now, this, this is something, and he's, you'll notice he says socially necessary a lot, and he didn't say it here. He said labor time necessary here, but he really means socially necessary. He does. And he kind of goes into the definition of that when, you know, he says, let's see, the average labor of a society incorporated into it. So socially necessary means that thanks to the way a society is structured, because nothing is in a vacuum, nothing is without society. Thanks to the way a society is structured, what do I have to do to make this? Okay, if I didn't have a society and I wanted to make boots, I'd have to go raise a cow. I'd have to go tan the leather. I, you know, if socially necessary to make boots is, I maybe need you know six hours on a factory production line of existing leather and thread to make a hundred boots. You know, but also the average productivity on that line. If I'm replaced with someone else, replaced with someone else, replaced with someone else. If I'm especially slow. They can replace me with something more average. I'm especially good. I'm not selling my labor power for any more because I could have been someone average. You know, I'm just trying to squeeze in there, and all I'm doing is pulling up or pulling down the average for everyone. Yep. Okay. Um, I also, let's see, it says it's production consequently presupposes existence. Given the individual, the production of labor power consists in his reproduction of himself and his maintenance. Yeah. For his maintenance, he requires a given quantity of the means of subsistence. Therefore, the labor time requisite for the production of labor power reduces itself to that necessary for the production of those means of subsistence, or the value of labor power is the value of means of subsistence necessary. 
So how much does it cost to keep me alive for the eight hours I'm coming in to work for you? Yeah, because remember, you know, I'm not selling my labor power because I don't need to work. Why the hell would I sell my labor power? Yeah. I'm selling labor power because I need to survive. So I don't have those means of production. You do. I need them to work, and I need to do that work to survive. Let me see those means of production, and you make sure I survive. And make sure I survive to come back, not just to do it for the eight hours today, but to come back and keep doing this at infinitum because you want to keep selling these boots over and over again to keep making money. You need me alive to do that. Yeah. So you might like working me for 23 hours, but if I get an hour of sleep a night, I'm going to be less productive. And remember, he doesn't just say keep alive totally. He Correct. says to, to reproduce this necessary At the labor. same level. At the same yeah. socially acceptable that right. means not only survive as a class, but reproduce babies as a class, and Correct. as an individual, be suitable to do the work. Work at my optimum, and you'll see these with with work. You know, sometimes they'll go in and they'll they'll buy you like fancier chairs, or they'll try to break up your shifts or something like that because they're trying to squeeze the most out of you, but still make sure you get that sleep. They don't care if you're enjoying your life, no. but they want you nice and refreshed and ready to work. They want you optimum. They want you awake, and sometimes they do that with coercion. You know, I'll fire you if you pass out on the line. Well, yeah, of course, duh. You know, and sometimes they, right? And sometimes they do that by like, you know, they're gonna rotate people around the factory line so you don't get um, bored on the same one thing over and over. Well, not just bored. Um, repetitive stress syndrome. Repetitive stress syndrome. Thank you. You know, they'll so they'll have you standing on one thing and then sitting on another and stuff like that. You know, I mean, they're they're gonna move you around. Okay, so these are all things they just want you to be able to reproduce that labor. Yeah. And because that's all they care about. You know, you're just a commodity to them. And that's not right, trying to demonize. That's not trying to, to, to say something pejorative about them. That That is just trying to literally, at its base, ex we have to explain how the system works. There is a black and white. There, ben Shapiro, facts don't care about your feelings. This is not a nice thing at this point. <laughs> God damn it, why did you mention me? Oh, because it was fun. Because <laughs> it's fun. No, because that's what it is. It's oh, not, yes. there is not, a, there's no level. These are the actual facts. Yes, these are the actual facts. This is what it is. This is what we're dealing with. It, yeah. It's not that. If the system works, this is how it works, period. Yeah, and now this is also talking about socially necessary subsistence, you know. I mean, you can't live in America without a car and an iPhone, or you can, but it's really hard to get to and from a job. And that's an interesting... You know, it's it's cheaper to live other places. Exactly, and that that's going to change, you know, what it costs for a person is going to change based on where they live and the time that they live in and, and all sorts of other stuff. And again, that's going to be an evolution. We're not, again, just talking about... Uh, Feed me my eight hour, feed me my gruel and feed me all, you know, as a society, we've gotten to a point where there's a certain base level expectation of what survival is and, yeah, and pay at that level or we're not going to be here. You'll notice from when we get to the working days uh, chapters of how much was that was earned from hard work. Oh, and how yeah. Bad that used to be. Yes, yes, yes. Again, <laughs> um, don't, don't get it twisted. We, we're yeah, still talking capitalists about Capitalists didn't give that to you, but uh, your fellow socialists like fought and died for that shit. Yep, 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 yep. Uh, but that said, the way he was saying this, that, that you know, you need certain things in society, social necessary. He says his natural wants, such as food, clothing, fuel, housing, vary according to the climactic and other physical conditions of his country. On the other hand, the number of extent of his so-called necessary wants and also the modes of satisfying them are themselves a product of historical development and depend, therefore, to a great extent on the degree of civilization in a country and, more particularly, on the conditions under which and, consequently, the habits and degree of comfort in which the class of free laborers has been formed. If you expect a house with air conditioning and you're not getting air conditioning, you're going to be a lot angrier about going to work, yep. you know, versus another country that, that doesn't expect that or doesn't need that for survival or whatever. You know, I mean, your, your culture determines these things to a certain extent. Correct. And that's where okay, you can, again, you, you follow the breadcrumbs as we go. The, there's, a, there's a reason that 
you know, there are no jobs, that, that you know, all these manufacturing jobs are not in America and all that. Mm-hmm. I think, again, you there is a certain level of expectation. And if a capital, if you're looking at it on a purely commodity basis, on a purely, you, how do I get the most out of this? If I can pay someone in another country a significantly less amount of money to do that, mm-hmm. what incentive would I have not to? Yeah. What in, What systematic, what part of this brilliant global system that you've created would prevent someone from doing that? And the better question is, what happens when that runs out? <laughs> because I, I, eventually there will be no more Global South to exploit. Well, theoretically, and that's the problem is either there will be no more Global South to exploit or there will be a perpetual Global South to exploit. And how you can reconcile that fact and, and sleep well at night is your own issue. Yeah, well, and, and you got a little more of Niemöller's problem with that, too, where it comes back and, and, and you don't think it's ever going to hit you and then it does. Uh-huh. You know, um, but uh, anyway. No, yeah, really complete diver- complete no, diversion there. But that's a really yeah. good point. Uh, we, we can get into to Imperial. There's some other works we could really get into. Oh, Imperial and stuff. we will. We'd love to read. We will. But this is, this is a big one, so let's take our time here. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, we're still very early. Very <laughs> early. So then he says, the owner of labor power is mortal. And therefore, as parents in the market has to be continuous, and the continuous of conversion of money into capital assumes this. The seller of labor power must perpetuate himself in a way that every living individual perpetuates himself by procreation. Got to be able to fuck. Got to be able to fuck. The labor power is withdrawn from the market by wear and tear and death and must be continually replaced at the very least by an equal amount of fresh labor power. Hence, the sum of the means of subsistence necessary for the production of labor power must include the means necessary for labor substitute. His children in order that he that this race of particular commodity owners may perpetuate its appearance in the market. And so that's where I was saying you have to survive as a class. That's what they really care about. They want you to survive at your maximum output. They want you to be the best performer as an individual unless they replace you. Okay? But you or your replacement has to survive as a class. And that's what they're worried about. And that uh, kind of sounds for now like it's on your side until the, the reality sets in a little more. Uh huh. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm I still no. No. When you say it at that level, no. I need you to survive because you're. I mean, it. it I. I feel very much like the Matrix battery scene right now, where you, it's like, yes, I need to survive because I need your life juices because it's what gets me the good stuff. Like that's. It, it's, it's it's again when it's it's amazing that reactionaries like the Matrix as much as they do oh, with their red weird pills. red pill oh, stuff. With their weird red pill because stuff. Because the 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 analogy that it accidentally does trying too hard to be deep is very much capitalism. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh god yeah. And, and the fact that you don't if you don't watch that movie and go oh fuck it's got yeah it is it's hundred the robots took over people what do you how do you think this is going. <laughs> Good yeah, Lord. and they don't have to be robots that take over. They're they're already taking over. They're already they're already, there. And they're already compelled by their greed. If you look at Jeff Bezos and tell me that man's not an android, you're wrong. <laughs> you're lying to yourself. Um, what was I about to say to you? That's a very good question. Yeah. <laughs> I completely lost my thought. Oh, oh okay. here we go. So, uh, see, therefore varies with the value of these means with the commodity of labor. Oh, I remember what I was going to say. So... You'll notice that in all the millennials are ruining everything articles, which, I you know, we're going to do another time if I, mm-hmm. I don't think Marx gets into it. But I, yeah. I think he might mention something that's that's cleverly tied into this. Uh, but this generation thing is just a construct they it, make to, like, point out, like, kids these days and adults and make – because everything is to divide you up from your is. other workers. And, and listen, Racism is to divide you up from your other workers. Sexism is to divide you up from your other workers. It's all to divide you up from your other workers. Okay? Listen, to, listen to the citations needed episode that was, like – 
three or four weeks ago on yeah. on that whole thing on generation. It's it does a very good job of clearly explaining why that's bullshit. But the big rash from lately is millennials aren't having enough kids. Yeah, this well, is great. Why would they worry about us why having enough kids? Who gives mm-hmm. a shit how many kids I want to have? Well, because they're worried about having enough workers to exploit. Well, and and you see, I mean, they did it very bluntly. The the it was it was so blatant that I was surprised that it didn't get as much. When toy, Toys R Us, when they were closing down. Yeah. That, millennials didn't have any kids to buy our toys, so that's why we're going out of business. Yeah. Re- really? <laughs> really? That's what you're going with? Like oh, that's What's funny is Toys R Us did actually go out of business. They were bought by Bain Capital and Bain Capital. Oh, Bain dear Capital. God. Why is that company allowed to keep existing being called Bain Capital? Like, it, 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 they broke Batman. <laughs> why do we let them? They're a supervillain, people. Like, by definition. So, <laughs> But yeah, yeah. So that was yeah. Mitt Romney, Cory Booker, all the oh, all the good hits. Oh god, oh god. <laughs> uh, so anyway, he says the value of labor power resolved itself in a value of definite quantity of the means of subsistence. If there, it therefore varies with the value of these means and with the quantities of labor requisite for their production. So if you need less labor to do something, eh, your labor power gets a little less expensive. Yep. You know. Uh, and then he goes on. He does some math equations, which are. Yeah. To read yeah. So we're not going to do that. No. But he God, says, no. He says if half a day's average social labor is incorporated within three shillings, and we'll, we'll say $3, okay? Plus. And then $3 is the price of the corresponding value of day's labor power. If its owner, therefore, offers it for sale at $3 a day, its selling price is equal to its value, and according to our supposition, our friend Moneybags, who is intent on converting his $3 into capital, pays this value. And this again, and is going to get more than three dollars out of it. That's the whole point. And yeah. we're again, this is where you're poke, 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 poking. We have to. The whole point of this equation. Keep going. Keep taking yourself back. The whole point of this equation. How do I make my money make me more money? That's yeah. all this entire system is designed to do. Mm-hmm. How does my money make me more money? Well, does my money make me more money if I do three dollars of labor, and you pay me three dollars of labor? Yeah. Does that make the guy... No, probably no. not going to make you any money. So why would that system continue to exist? Oh, maybe it doesn't work that way. Yeah. Oh, shit. And remember, this is the heart of capitalism. This is what makes it different. People have been selling stuff on markets for thousands of years. People sell commodities. Mm-hmm. People have done loans. I mean, Aristotle wasn't worried about usury if it didn't exist. Could, Jesus and the moneylenders and the flipping money tables. Lenders, yeah. You original know. table flip. Oh, the original table flip. The OG table flip. OG table flip. Uh, but... You know, I mean, all this stuff's been around for thousands of years, but the kernel in capitalism is, I have money, so I can make you do the work for me, okay? As long as I'm buying the work for less than you're making me, but enough that you'll sell your work, mm-hmm. okay? And the way I'm doing that is I have something you need, and I'm going to hold it over your head. That thing is the money, again, that I have. See, it's a circle! It's a circle. Time's a flat circle. Yeah, and then it says... The alienation of labor power and its actual appropriation by the buyer, its employment, and its use value are separated by an in- interval of time. But in those cases which the formal alienation of the sale and the use value of commodity is not simultaneous with its actual delivery to the buyer, the money with the letter usually functions as means of payment. So what that's saying is usually if you're doing work, the money coming to you is, is just is payment. Yeah. It's coming to you later. You're going to work first. Correct. Okay. And that's the difference in payment. I mean, unless there's interest, payment is just 
the exchange, but you're getting your end of the exchange down the road. At a later that's, date. Yeah, because that's agreed upon. That's part of the, again, and, and that's part of the agreement. No one, you weren't shanghaied into it. You agreed to it as part of going to work for the gentleman in the market when they're you went com- to go sell. Yeah, they're completely in their rights to pay you later. They're giving you that same value. As exactly. long as they're they're giving you the, at the time they agreed upon, at the value they agreed upon. So, And he says that this credit is no mere fiction. as shown not only the occasional loss of wages on the bankruptcy of the capitalist, but also by a series of more enduring consequences. So that's saying, like, the capitalist goes out of business and you don't get paid. It's just the way it is. That shows that the credit's happening. Now, he's yeah. still trying to play within the rules. He's just kind of like, oh, by the way, that, that stuff happens all the time. Uh-huh. And that's important. I mean, everything in Marx, it sounds like, oh, this is yay oldy English. Why do I care about any of it from some German guy? But it pops back up and pops back, back up, up and pops back up. And even right now, you'll you'll think of like, oh, I gotta lock my car windows. These people like bust me in. These cops are saving me from the horrible thief people. The majority of theft in the United States, year after year, wage theft is wage theft is the single highest amount of by theft. by far. And it's not, not like, even close. Not that it's so much the single highest that if you combine all of the other types of theft, they account for less than half of the theft in the United States. That's wage theft. That's assuming that minimum wage is fair paid and everybody's paid fairly and, and we haven't even got into no. completely about how that's undermining you. We're just starting to, to tuck, tuck those kernels, right? Yeah. And yet we get all the way into the modern capitalism and the number one type of theft is people saying, hey, my job is to rip you off for a living. Is it ripping you off enough? I'm just going to not pay you for the value. You're not getting the three shillings, buddy. It's, it, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 in, it's insanity. I mean, yeah. it is... It is it is insanity. Yeah. So I, I I wanted to highlight that because of that. But and it's important. And he again, was just he was really just using that to say, hey, obviously you're getting paid later. This wouldn't happen. Exactly. So, and then at the very end of the chapter says, the sphere that we are deserting, within whose boundaries the sale and the purchase of labor power goes in, is in fact the Eden and the innate rights of man. There are alone, there are alone rule, freedom, democracy, property, and Bentham. Freedom because both the buyer and seller of a commodity, say, labor power, are constrained only by their free will. The contract is free agents, and the agreement to come to is but the form that they give the legal expression of their common will. Equality, because each enters into the relation with the other, as simple owner of commodities, and they exchange the equivalent for equivalent. Property, because each disposes of what is his own. And Bentham, because each looks only to himself, only to force that brings them together and puts them in relation with each other, is the selfishness, the gain of private interests of each. Each looks to himself only and no one with troubles. Himself about the rest, just because they do so, they do all in accordance with the pre-established harmony of things and under the auspicious and all shrewd providence work together to their mutual advantage for the common weal of the interest of all. Now, some of this is pretty mm-hmm. mocking, especially mm-hmm. that last sentence. Oh, so much sarcasm. But he is saying, hey, you know, I mean, you're going to say, oh, and, and these are the four pillars of liberalism for this, mm-hmm. these guys is freedom, equality, property. And you never hear it these days, just like you never hear usury, but Bentham. Yep. Okay. And, um, and Bentham is, is again, just referring to, you, just because Jeremy Bentham was the father of utilitarianism. It, yeah. It's the greatest good for the greatest number of people that, that kind of distilled down yeah. utilitarianism. Which, again, is... If I if we all work for ourselves, mm-hmm. it'll make the best for everyone. It's the idea. It's, it's really, we call it individualism today, and... I'm a big fan of individuality. I'm not a big fan of individualism. And a lot of people don't know how to delineate that. Um, Bentham is a good way to delineate that. Yeah. Uh, and he 
uh, again, the logical limits of utilitarian. Yeah. I mean, again, take utilitarianism is is the philosophical idea that sounds great to the person taking an intro to philosophy class, and then you're forced to actually take like another one, and then you actually have to like poke at it for more than two seconds, and you're like, oh, this is nonsense. This is absolute <laughs> childish. Not like this is the base level of thinking and and it's so easy to tear apart on so many different levels that it just mm-hmm. it, it never plays out but again it makes really great things like when you're when you're making declarations of broad declarations of rights of men and and ideological you know it, it, it out great because it sounds perfect on its face yeah now he rounds up our chapter claiming that okay this is what makes it capitalism by saying he who before was the money owner now strides in front as the capitalist the possessor of labor power follows as his laborer the one with an air of importance, smirking, intent on business. The other timid, holding back, like one who was bringing his own hide to the market and nothing to expect but a hiding. Now, I have a tanning in mind, so it's oh, interesting. It's, that same thing. Same yeah. thing. It's, it's God. <laughs> I mean, that is that is just... He's like, oh, by the way, uh, we don't want to quite get out of Chapter 6 before I say this whole thing's shitty. We'll this, get into that later, but it's really it's shitty. It's really shitty. He, he, he wanted to poke that bear right there. Oh <laughs> and it's so fun. It's, it's just, and again, just from the context, to think of it when it was happening yeah. is... And, and to think of how far it's gone since then and that it oh hasn't my God. been... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's it's insanity. He would be tearing his beard out if he looked. Oh, so and he has a glorious beard. Oh, not not no, Engel's glorious, but very, no, very, very, very solid. Though. Very <laughs> solid. Very proportional. Is what I like yes. about the, the the Mark's hair is very. It's a whole circle. It really is. It's, it's like it's, his solar. He like, yeah. He's got his his halo. It's good times. So we're gonna get into chapter seven now. This is the labor process and the process of producing surplus value. This is saying, hey. How are we making this MM Prime? We knew it came from the labor power. Let's let's dig in. Let's see how it goes. Another term for that creating the surplus value is, of course, valorization, uh, which is less, uh, you know, insightful. It's exciting, but it's, it sounds better, but it, no, it it does not mean anything on its face. So we'll we'll talk about surplus value instead of valorization for yeah. your own sanity. <laughs> okay. So the capitalist buys labor power in order to use it, and labor power in use alone is labor itself. The purchaser of labor power consumes it by setting the seller to work. By working, the latter becomes actually what before he was only potentially. Labor power in action, a laborer. So he's again saying, hey, labor power is just your potential, what you're what you're expected to do. What you, you're selling, what you could do in six hours for the subsistence that you really need, the only reason you're selling your labor power in the first place. Yeah. Okay, and it could be a subsistence of one if you're in a, a little better position. But again, you're 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 still coming to get your hide tanned. Yeah. And you're especially coming to get your hide tanned if it's for survival, yep. which it realistically is for most of us. So uh, now it says the fact that the production of use values or goods is carried out under the control of the capitalist and on his behalf does not alter the general character of the production. We shall, therefore, in the first place, have to consider the labor process independently of the particular form it assumes under the given social conditions. Okay? Yeah. So, <laughs> that's very, very meaty mouth. Yeah. Mealy mouth but Damn it, Marks. He's, he's saying that we're going to take a look just directly at the labor, okay? Mm-hmm. 
And he says, you know, labor in the first place is a process which man and nature participate. And he's going to go man and nature, man and nature, man and nature, okay? He opposes himself to nature and one of our own forces, setting in motion arms and legs and head and hands, natural forces in his body in order to appropriate nature's production for his own wants. The... I can't understand how the guy writes so well at some points, and then at other points is literally having to step-by-step step say, man breathes, man hits hammer, <laughs> man hits hammer on rock, rock makes this. Dude, we, I got it. I, I understand. Move. Okay. Move, Marks. So let's do these next two sentences and then make a jump here because we're not really reading. Through. So it says, by thus acting on the external world and changing it, he at the same time changes his own nature. He develops his slumbering powers and compels them to be, uh, to act in obedience to his sway. So he's saying your practice makes you a better laborer. Yeah, practice makes you a better laborer. You're learning. You're starting to adapt your body. You know, and, and and that makes sense, right? You know, you learn habits. You learn how to do things faster. Your body grows strengths. You're conditioning yourself to this type of. And that labor. works in non. It completely works in non physical styles of labor too. Any any mentally, you know, again and. Banking, uh, banking, I'm a computer programmer, you computer know. programmer, exactly. Banking, you know, you figure out, you you can add quicker, you can get to the, uh, you know, it, all of it, all of it adds up. It's all the more we you do it. Sales, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the capitalism's pure dark, <laughs> cancerous underbelly. Yay. Yeah. So then a little farther down, it says we presuppose labor in a form that stamps it as exclusively human. Mm-hmm. A spider conducts operations that resemble those of a weaver, and a bee puts to shame the architecture of construction themselves. See, that's that's they, stick to that stuff, Marks. That, that was a great sentence. That was a solid <laughs> sentence right there. But what distinguishes the worst architect from the best of bees is this: the architect raises his structure and his imagination before he erects it in reality. So he's saying, you know, a bee's working on instinct. Mm-hmm. This is a survival. He goes out, and does, 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 does. You're going, hmm. I want to build this. Yep. I'm going to do this, you know. We're doing it with an intent that is not simply for our own survival. Yeah, so basically it's not like you mow your lawn once a week and you never realized it even happened and all of a sudden your lawn's mowed. Like you go out you go, I'm going to mow the lawn today. I need a couple hours to think about how I'm going to drive around the thing <laughs> with this buzzing noise in my ear. You know, I mean, you have to yeah. consciously do stuff. Yeah, you, you do. You know, and, and actually, it's kind of a scary sentence when you've worked in a factory. Yeah. Which is something I've done. Because uh-huh. you do find yourself zoning out and just, you're a bee. Uh-huh. You just do. But at least until you zone out, you're, you're human. Con- and you're usually conscious when you wake up in the morning, like, all right, I'm going to go do yeah. that thing. Right. And then a, the podcast goes on and you, you, you stop <laughs> paying attention and pretend you're not there. Yeah. All right, so, and he goes a little more into um, the personal activity of man, and he says, Such are fish we catch and take from their element, water, timber. We fell into the virgin forest and ores which we extract from their veins. If, on the other hand, the subject of labor has to say, been filtered through previous labor, we call it raw material, such as ore already extracted for washing. All raw material is the subject of labor, but not every subject of labor is raw material. It can only become so after it's undergone some alteration by the means of labor. So, he's... A tree is not raw material. Right. Timber is raw material. Exactly. The process, the tree that's been chopped down and ready to be made is a raw material. Yeah. So he's saying, you know, I mean, we've gotten this far, and he's not in the debunk everything these liberal theologists say every time. Theologists. Theorists. (laughs) It depends on what, yeah, some of it. Uh, I've met some Adam Smithians that would call it a theology. (laughs) Uh, 
you know, instead of just debunk everything they say, you know, move on. I mean, produce. he's producing a theory here, and he's done a good job so far. We're really digging into it. But some points he just kind of goes, yeah, they're going to go, hey, wait, wait a minute. And right now they're going to go, hey, wait, wait a minute. Where do the raw materials come from? Why, why am I buying labor there? And he's going, well, you know, the tree's not cutting itself down, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you got fish in a pond. That's not a raw material. You no. got fish on a hook. That's raw material. Now we can get, now we can cook. Yeah. Now we got something to do. Yeah. The cow in the field is not a raw material. Now, when you've murdered that cow and you have leather, now we can talk. Yes. And, uh, I mean, and and this is important ground because we're going to talk a little bit about um, variable capital and static cap. I can't think of the word. I have it right ahead, so I can't help him here. I'm sorry, guys. Okay. I'll I'll, I'll get it. It's like. uh, But again, this kind of shows this this highlights constant capital. Constant capital and variable capital. We'll get there. What we're kind of highlighting again is he thought about all of this. Yeah, <laughs> he oh, spent, yeah. I mean, forty years of thinking about this. Eventually, you'll you'll have thought of a lot of the little. I mean, again, this is a very very well reasoned mm-hmm. piece. He, he he covered bases on the field only the pros get to. Uh huh. He's he's all over. And you could skip half of those bases and still have a compelling argument. But just know if you've only heard you know the Cliff Notes version of this. It's a thousand something pages, and that's just cap version. That's just book one. Yeah. There's also, if you want Marx's Cliff Notes version of this again, labor theory of value and price, profit, and value. I think it's called. Uh, it's yeah, they're, right. they're 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 too short a thing to basically assume into this. But this is the really detailed masterpiece. This those two are essentially cor- incorporated in here, and instead of being twenty pages, it's a thousand. It's getting there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so he's going on a little bit past the, the raw material. And he says, thus nature becomes one of the organs of man's activities, one of the annexes of his own bodily organs, adding to stature himself in spite of the Bible, as the earth to his original larder, so to his original tool house. It supplies him, for instance, with the stones for throwing, grinding, pressing, cutting. The earth itself is an instrument of labor, but when used in such an agriculture, or is when used in this way, in agriculture... Yeah. is a whole series of other instruments and a comparatively high development of labor. Makes okay. sense. Yeah. So to be able to exploit the earth for its own labor assumes that you've gotten to a, a certain point where you can use the tools and, and, and use all of its fun things for exactly, to exploit yeah. the earth against itself. Yeah. So, I mean, he's, he's really getting into, you know, hey, I mean, you're going to take everything and you're going to make it the commodities from the raw material, then you're going to take the raw material and you're going to make it a product. And everything that you have is coming from your interaction with nature, your, you know, your earth. These tools are coming from some metal. And people don't think about that. You know, you might think, oh, I don't do any hard labor. I just, you know, mess around on my phone to make these sales all day. Well, where the hell did the silicon come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's coming from somewhere. Yeah. So. All of this, yeah, none of this, none of this exists unless it's been forged out of something. Yeah, and uh, and I don't want to be skipping if you've got some highlights here. No, God, no. I'm jumping no. down now to, to page 129, and he's saying, if we examine the whole process from the point of view of its result, the product, it is plain to the both the instruments and the subject of labor, are the means of production, and mm-hmm. that the labor itself is productive labor. So here he's saying, this is what means of production are. Yep. These are all of the resources, the raw materials, the portions of the earth you have access to, to do this job. The factory. The factory. I mean, that's, it's getting a little more advanced than what he said earlier when you say the factory, but it's exactly what he's saying. Yes. Yeah. So, 
Um, he also gets into, and this is a very important distinction, and this will come into the, the constant of variable capital, but it's a very important distinction. A machine does not serve the purposes of labor, or a machine uh, which does not serve the purposes of labor mm. is useless. In addition, it falls prey to the destructive influence of natural forces. Iron rust, wood rots, yard with which neither weave or knit a cotton is wasted. Living labor must seize upon these things and rouse them from their death sleep. Change them from their mere possible use values into real and effective ones. Bathed into the fire of labor, appropriate as part and parcel of labor's organism, it is where we made alive in the performance of their functions and the process. They are in truth consumed, but consumed with a purpose. Okay, so he is saying, hey, you know, I mean, you might have these machines and things like that, but they're going to wear down over time. Yep. And that that's setting us up for, for constant capital. We'll get there. And uh, he's saying that they're useless without labor. You know, I mean, even the most automate automation is just going to close gaps in labor to, to lay people off. You still need labor to make things go. You're not going to run a factory with nobody there. You're not going to have, you know, even automation without, like, an IT team that's going to go out there and fix IT it. Team, yeah. Massive IT team that's going to go out and fix things or someone that can jump in and, you know, say, slap the shipping labels on the boxes if, if the whole, you know, distribution center goes down or something like that. I mean, these, these guys are going to need... Labor at okay. some level, and again, in this in right. this instance, we weren't taught. You know, Marx. I don't think could have conceptualized that level. You know, no, that in Amazon, way beyond it, him. We're talking about you know, Marx in this sense is talking a plow. You know, is it's it's not labor. There's no labor. The plow doesn't plow itself. You, someone has to be utilizing it. Someone has to be using it. Yeah, it's a tool. He, it's a tool. It's a thing. To so use. he's he's driving home that the value is coming from the labor. You may yes. have a tool. That makes it labor your, more Your sweet efficient. power loom makes it weaving a lot more efficient than a regular guy with needle and thread, but he is nothing without someone running that loom. Right. It's still the labor that makes that happen. Yes. If the capitalist was doing the labor himself, he wouldn't be a capitalist. No. no. Now, he might do it himself alongside you, but the fact that he's making money off your labor yeah. still makes him a capitalist. He's just a capitalist who didn't want to pay another person to do some work that day. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, so it's saying, like, all of this stuff is the product of labor. Do not, do not unmarry it from nature, because everything's coming from nature, and do not unmarry it from labor. Those are the two tenets of value, and they are still showing strong when you look at the process. Uh, let's see. goes down to material factors. Insofar, then, as its instruments and subjects are themselves products, labor consumes products in order to create products. In other words, consumes one set of products by turning them into means of production for another set. But just as a beginning, the only participators in the labor process were man and earth, which the latter exists independently of man, so even now we still employ the process of many means of production provided directly by nature that do not represent any combination of natural substances with human labor. So he's saying, you know, I mean, these capitalists are kind of, they're guarding nature a little bit away from you too. Yeah. Yeah, and, and he's not shy about that. He wants that to be in your head. So um, let's see. Now let's return to our would-be capitalist. We left him just after he'd purchased in the open market all the necessary factors labor product. Its objective factor is the means of production, as well as its subjective factor, the labor power. With a keen eye of an expert, he has selected the means of production and the kind of labor power best adapted to his particular trade, be it spinning, boot making, anything. He then proceeds to consume the commodity, the labor power, as he just bought by causing the laborer the impersonation of the labor power to consume the means of production as labor. The general character of the process evidently is not changed by the fact that the laborer works only for the capitalist instead of for himself. Moreover, 
that particular methods and operations are employed in boot making or spinning are not immediately changed by their intervention of the capitalist. He must begin by taking the labor power he finds in the market and to be satisfied with the labor of such kind that will be found immediately preceding the rise of the capitalist. So he's saying he's he's got to buy what he has. Yeah. He can't just, you know. It doesn't appear to him. Yeah. It does not. It does not just. Poof! Oh God! I have. A, I have the means. Right. Right. Here I mean, are the means. He's got to have what he's been able to buy. That mm-hmm. that out of his capital, he's he's been able to best suit his means of production, and he's got to take the labor he can buy, and he's got to plug it in. Yep. Okay. He says the labor process, turn the process by which the capitalist consumes labor power, exhibits two phenomena. First, the labor works under the control of the capitalist to whom the labor belongs. He's taking good care of the work is done proper in a proper manner, and the means of production are used with intelligence so that there's no unnecessary waste of raw material and no wear and tear upon what it's unnecessarily caused. So he's saying, you know, the capital is going to make sure that uh, you're actually doing work on your shift. Yeah. <laughs> and he's saying that you're not just, like, Taking all the shit, you know. Yeah, yeah, not not using like forty yards of fabric to make a ten yard of fabric. Yeah, shirt. yeah, yeah. I mean, make sure that you know if your job's mowing lawns, you're not just like dumping an extra gallon of gas in there and doing some wheelies. Yep. You gotta you gotta get the job done. <laughs> yeah. So, secondly, the product of the property of the capitalist is not that of the laborer; it's immediate producer. Suppose the capitalist pays for a day labor power and its value, then he has the right to use that power for a day as it belongs to him just as much as the right to use any other commodity, such as a horse that was hired for the day. The purchaser of the commodity belongs to its use, and the seller of labor power, by giving up his labor, does no more in reality than part with the use value he's sold. From the instant he steps into the workshop, the use value is labor power, and therefore also its use, which labor belongs to the capitalist. By the purchase of the labor power, the capitalist incorporates labor into a living ferment with lifeless constituents of the product, from this point of view, the labor process is nothing more than consumption of a commodity. The labor power, but this consumption cannot be affected except by applying labor power with the means of production. The labor process is a process between things the capitalist has purchased and things that have become his property. Now that's a little long. It's a little long, but it's a, it's a very simple way. Of, I mean, it's a very yeah. detailed way of saying a capitalist is using a commodity, Yeah. your labor, yeah. To create another commodity. He is using up the eight hours of labor he's purchased, call it fuel, call it whatever you want. Yeah. And he's you, he's combining that with something he already had, the the, the means of production, the things he had that you he could produce stuff with, to create another thing. And he's also he's also saying that the capitalist, because this is going back into the rights being a good basis but not a good end all be all, not a good ideological Yeah. Like, you know, oh right. Yeah, no, I mean, no rights. Not, oh my god. Not the city on the hill. Is not the city on the hill. Uh, because they're within their rights to, to do whatever the hell they want with you. Once, once you step into that market, once you, you step agreed. Into, you agreed. You said, hey, Consent I'll give my hours list. to you. If you flip them the bird after an hour and say, this sucks, guess what you're not getting paid for? Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, and that's their right. Mm-hmm. They have that right. That that fits the rules of capitalism. 100%. So, you know, if they go on there and it's not what you expect and they're working you like a dog, well, hey, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what they bought. Yeah. I mean, it's what you sold. Shouldn't have sold it. So, and that's that's pretty nasty. That's not a and good it, thing to see. And it's not, but it's again, it, it still gives both parties yeah. agency in this process. In the in the sense of it's not 
there is another. It, there is not a one place that you were forced to go sell your labor to. You could theoretically go and sell your labor to somebody else in some other means. You chose to do it in this manner. If the capitalist is exploit, feels like you feel like he's exploiting you, go seek out somebody else that's going to provide you better value on your labor. Yeah. Um, the other thing that that kind of goes into play here is that kind of reminds you that whatever you make with your labor, that's his. Yes. And that's the alienation of it, right? You might make fifty pair of boots. You don't get to take on one of those home unless you're, he just decides that's how he's paying you for your labor power. Your name's not on the bottom of that boot. Yeah, yeah. That's his his boots. That's his boots. You made them. They're there. You can do all that work. That's his. Tell you pound sign all day long. He bought it. Which is fun when you get into the concepts of, uh, you see that more in modern, in, in, in our past job, yeah. uh, you would see fun things baked into... Uh, like intellectual property created yes. while the the concept that they not no 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 they don't own the physical things you make they own ideas you came up with while you're if you're on the clock oh if you thought of okay. something that's theirs i'm a software engineer i saw an end to no competes right yep. I, I have to do these contracts where i say hey you know my brain power used here is theirs and just to make sure it's theirs i have to sell part of my labor power by saying hey six months after i work for them I can't work for someone similar enough where they could use those ideas because yep. they got to make sure that's theirs. They bought it from me. Yep. And that's pretty. And it gets pretty geez. fucking. It gets pretty freaking weird where you're like, wait, you own? Huh? How? What? Huh? No, that's mine. Yeah. That's my and, thought. It also brings us all. Everything circles back to, to Elon Musk. Oh point. God. Uh, everybody goes, oh my God, he's this great inventor guy and da, da, da. No, I mean he got in on PayPal because he's some rich apartheid baby that, that yeah. moved to Canada. Emeralds in the pockets. And. So. And then he bought up this Tesla company and takes all these other people's ideas. And he's not sitting there brainstorming all day long, coming up with more fuel-efficient cars. He's not actually Tesla. He's not actually Tesla. He bought a company with the guy's name on it. That does not make him Tesla. But these laborers, he bought their labor power. Yeah. So he gets to just own their ideas. And, and This he, is my idea. And so, <laughs> and so it's disgusting. He's doing everything within his, again, within the rights of the system. He bought, yeah. Did, yeah. did he come up with the, the, that car? The company he bought and the people he paid did. So, yeah, he did, I guess. Yeah, I mean, basically, you walk up to Elon, you're like, I came up with this. And Elon goes, you came up with this? And then you walk away and Elon goes, I, I came, came up, up with this. this. I mean, that's exactly Welcome what it is. Welcome to content creation on the internet, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. It's, oh, God. But, no, it, it, it's it's everywhere. It's, it's you know, these people. And, again, that's not, that's not discounting that the person may at one time have had a great idea or done something genuine or done something right. good. Well, we even talked about, you know, your boss could be working right beside you, doing as much work as you. Yeah. But he's still getting the credit for your work. Exactly. And that's, you know. at a certain level, the, the why, why, why. Yeah. Um, now we're going to get to section two, and that's the production of surplus value. And it says, use values are only produced by capitalists because, insofar as they are the material substratum, the depositories of exchange value. So they saying capitalists don't care about how great, you know, they, they can give you all your love, your customer, think of the product, things you want. They don't care about any of that. They just care about you buying it. This yeah. is just money to them. They can make any kind of pair of sneakers you want. They don't care if it's high performance or if it's going to hold up for a long time. They just want you to buy it. And all these, like, guarantees of quality or warranties or stuff, that's just to make you buy it. And when that stuff comes back, they're just kind of eating it as it's baked into the, the process expense. of getting it's, you to buy it. It's baked into the means of production, being able to take returns. Yeah, it's, it's a means of production. They just want you to buy it. That's all they care about. You're just a big dollar sign to them. And you can they'll convince you otherwise of every bit of advertising they can. <laughs> all the slow air. Um, this is 
this is a new Wells Fargo. You know, I mean, all that stuff. Oh, That's, that was that was fantastic that those ads launched the day before they got hit with a billion dollar fine and had to release a hundred, like a million new fraudulent accounts. Oh, the timing yeah. on it was just, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, oh, give it to me. Oh, yeah, so, so good. So, I mean, you know, Facebook, they, they don't really care that they're teaming with the most craven, destructive <laughs> think tank in the whole world. They they just care that they can advertise, we're just going to stop the fake news because mm. we care about we you. We care about you. Facebook. And they don't care about it. They just want to advertise that so, you, so they get money for their ads. Yep. You know, and that's all it is. That's, so. that's a, God, yes. So, you know, back to slightly less modern craven references. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, our capitalist has two objects in view. In the first place, he wants to produce a use value that has value in exchange. So not the use value itself, just that it has one, because remember, with no use value, there's no exchange value. That is to say, an article destined to be sold a commodity. Secondly, he desires to produce a commodity whose value shall be greater than the sum of the values of the commodity used in its production. That is the means of production and the labor power he purchased with good money on the open market. So your so he has to he has a thing that he wants to make he has to make that thing, and that thing has to be worth more than the cost of the raw materials plus the cost of the person he paid to make it. Yeah, he gets into like cotton and spindles and stuff. Yeah, and, yarn and yeah, and he basically says, you know, if the means of production cost him a hundred bucks and your labor cost him sixty five dollars, then the product of your labor and the use of those means of production in that day better make you know make him $190 than he's made $30. If that, there's $245 worth of components in an iPhone, yeah. I'm selling the iPhone for $900. Your labor is going to cost me under the $700 difference there or it's not going to happen. Right, and, and everything else we, is a surplus value. Yeah. Exactly. And the more the smaller we can get one of those two numbers, the the better we can we can make the bottom now, line. Now, people are probably connecting the dots. There is a modern word for surplus value, uh, profit. <laughs> Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Um, yeah, that word I hate it. So just yeah, surplus <laughs> value. Other than the question marks profit meme, it's it's a horrible word. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's yeah. It's a dirty, <laughs> dirty thing. He goes on a little bit at down in the ten pounds of cotton spindle yeah. stuff. The labor required for the production of cotton, the raw material, of the yarn, is put to the labor necessary to produce the yarn, and therefore is contained in the yarn. The same applies embodied in the spindle, without whose wear and tear the cotton would not spin. So he's driving home, hey, these means of production aren't creating value. They're just no. used by the laborer for value. So he says, hence, in determining the value of yarn, the labor time required in its production, all the special cases carried on in various times and places, which were necessary to produce the cotton and the spindle, and then the cotton spindle spin the yarn, may together be looked at different phases of one and the same process, creating the value. So... He's saying that, you know, I mean, if you bought this cotton for a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars, he said pounds, but a hundred dollars, the cotton's only a hundred dollars because it's gained value farther back in the process. So I think he got the gloves in this. Is that what he did? He got the, and it says the value of these gloves is really the value of you're using the spindle, the value of the cotton Cotton. producers, all the way back. Everyone in every step, you know. Had to get paid. Someone had to get paid to Every step of the, to mine the stuff in your iPhone, to, to, to refine to, the stuff, to ship the stuff over to us, to mm-hmm. put it all together, to market it, to play it up, to do all, every person involved in that had to get paid at some point. Yeah, the, the programmers, the salespeople, the, everybody made that value there. And so, so if you want to, uh, you, you know, 
lock yourself in a sense of existential dread and ennui. Uh, try and think about that for like more than three things in your day to day life, and then just <laughs> shut down mentally for a while because you can't fathom the number of individuals. Did you just encourage everyone to lock themselves in ennui? Oh. <laughs> Yeah, basically. <laughs> Welcome. You're two hours into this one. Uh, get ready for some solid ennui. <laughs> you just there's a horrible fate on everybody uh, that nobody I'm, deserves. I'm sorry. It's the ring. You you knew what you were getting into. <laughs> All right. So it says value is independent of a particular use value by which it's born. It must be embodied in the use value of some kind. Secondly, the time occupied in the labor production must not exceed the time really necessary under the given social conditions. Therefore, no more than one pound of cotton be requisite to spin one pound of yarn. Must be care be taken to more, no more of its weight the cotton is consumed, the production of one pound of yarn, and similarly regard with the spindle, like wearing down the spindle. So he's saying, you know, again, you're not going to gain value just by consuming extra resources. No. Okay. And and that's, that's important. I can't remember, is it this chapter where he says, you know, if you buy 200 pounds of, of yarn, and 200 pounds of yarn should make 200 gloves, and you use 200 pounds of yarn to make 100 gloves, those gloves aren't twice as valuable. No. <laughs> you just wasted a bunch of yarn. Now, now, in, until you get your marketing team on it, and you tell yeah, them to make right. it about scare, it's, oh, it's scarce now, and then it, I mean, but, yeah. No. So, and he says, while the labor is at work, labor constantly undergoes a transformation. From being in motion, it becomes an object without motion. From being a labor working, it becomes a thing produced. At the end of one hour of spinning, that act is represented by a definite quantity of yarn. In other words, the definite quantity of labor, namely that of one hour, has become embodied in the cotton. We say the labor, i.e. the expenditure of the vital force of the spinner, and not the spinning labor, because the special work of the spinning counts here, only so far as in the expenditure of labor power in general, and not so far as its specific work. Yeah. So we're not saying this is this value because of the type of work that went into it. We're saying this is this valuable because of just it's the labor. general. It, yeah, it's, it's, it's labor. general labor that went into it. And I highlighted a lot in this chapter. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good chapter. Okay. Uh, let's see. So now he's talking about the total... Oh, yeah, this is a big old chunk of importance. Uh -huh. Okay. Let's consider the total value of the product of 10 pounds of yarn. Two and a half days of labor has been embodied in it. Which And, and again, this sounds like we're just throwing a value. It's like, where the hell two and a half yeah. days come from? We're skipping the, the, it's the there. nitty gritty. It's there. <laughs> Trust us. Damn it. We're just getting the points across. But I'm You go you read the words. other thousand pages, assholes. We're doing our best. <laughs> He says that the substance of the spindle is worn away and half the day was absorbed during the process of spinning. This two and a half days of labor is always represented by a piece of gold in the value of 15 shillings, we'll say 15 bucks, and so 15 bucks is an adequate price for 10 pounds of yarn. And the price of one pound, one pound is 18, I don't know what pence is compared to a shilling, 18, nine bucks. 18 yeah. pence might be nine bucks, I don't know. So he says, in either way, it's a different value of money. It's a lesser value of money. Correct. So our capitalist stares in astonishment. The value of the product is exactly equal to the value of the capital advanced. The value so advanced is not expanded. No surplus value has been created. And consequently, money has not been converted into capital. The price of the yarn is 15 shillings. I'll just leave the English words in here because I don't know. Please. And 15 shillings were spent in an open market upon the constituent elements of the product. And what amounts to the same thing upon the factory labor process? Ten shillings were paid for cotton, two for the substance of the spindle, and three for the labor power. The swollen value of the yarn is of no avail. It is merely the sum of the values forming the existing cotton and the spindle and the labor power. Out such as a simple addition of existing values, no surplus value can arise. 
These separate values are all now concentrated in one thing, but they were also in the sum of 15 shillings before it was split up into three parts in the product of the commodity. So it's saying it doesn't matter where the value came from. The total value matters. Yep. And so, uh-oh, he's not making any money. So there is, in reality, nothing very strange about this result. The value of one pound of yarn being 18 pence and our, is our capitals buys 10 pounds of yarn in the market. He must pay for 15 shillings for them. It is clear that whether a man buys his house ready built or gets it built for him, in neither case will the mode of acquisition increase the amount of money laid on the house. Our capitalist, who's at home in this vulgar economy, exclaims, Oh, but I advance my money for the express purpose of making more. The way to hell is paved with good <laughs> intentions, and he might as well have easily intended to make money without producing it at all. He threatens all sorts of things. He won't be caught napping again. In the future, he will buy the commodities in the market instead of manufacturing himself. But if all his brother capitalists were to do the same thing, where would he find commodities on the market? And his money, he cannot eat. You can't eat your money. <laughs> so he goes on, blah, 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 and he says, he now gets obstinate. Can the laborer, he asked, merely with his arms and legs, produce commodities out of nothing? Do I not supply him with the materials by means in which he alone and his labor could be embodied? Am I that the greater part of society, or I'm sorry, and as, as the greater part of society consists of ne'er-do-wells, have I not rendered society incalculable service of my instruments of production? My cotton and my spindle, and not only society, but the labor also, whom in addition I have provided with all the necessity of life. And I, am I not allowed nothing in return for this service? Well, but has not the laborer rendered him an equivalent service of changing mm -hmm. his cotton and spindle yarn? Moreover, there is no question of the service. A service is nothing more than the useful effect of use value, but its commodity or its labor. So he's saying, you know, these capitals are like, well, I gave them this opportunity. They wouldn't have this without me. I made this company from scratch. I, I deserve this money. Job creators. I'm the, the job creator. Job creator. I'm the job creator. When really he's just out there trying to buy labor power. And he's saying, you know, if I created these jobs and I make, you know, if you're making any money, then you're taking more than your share is what he's saying. If you're yeah. making, if you're just taking your share, hey, great. You created all these jobs. Great service. You're getting paid back equally. This is fair. So this is our friend, our friend Moneybags, up oh. to this time, has been so purse-proud, suddenly assumes the modest demeanor of his own workmen and exclaims, Have I myself not worked? Have I not performed the labor of the superintendence of overlooking the spinner? Oh. How does this not labor, too, to create value? His overlooker and his manager try to hide their smiles. <laughs> Meanwhile, after a hearty laugh, he resumes his usual mane. Though he chanted to us as a whole creative economist, in reality, he says he would not give a brass farthing for it. So he knows he's bullshit. Yeah, he knows he's bullshit. Yeah. So it says, you know, let us examine more closely. And he starts getting labor, value of labor, blah, blah, blah. And he says, therefore, the value of the labor power and the value which labor power creates in the labor process are two entirely different magnitudes. And this difference of the two values is what the capitalist had in view when he was purchasing the labor power. So, you know, it, again, this is the distinction between labor power and labor. If you weren't making more than what you were getting paid for, the he capitalist would, makes nothing. And he would have no reason to employ he you. He would have no reason to employ you. So, he, I mean, by definition, you have to be selling your work, okay? So, by definition, a capitalist can be nothing more than a leech. He has to be. Not to be some kind of sick, psychophantic, horrible person. These are not the evil dogs sucking off. You know, we talked about the stolen wage labor. This is not necessarily that or the biggest, you know, just any capitalist. You you can't be a capitalist without being a leech. Everybody's like, oh, my God, you know, what about these people sucking off on welfare and stuff like that? 
none of them are sucking away work like a capitalist. Mm-hmm. If something does nothing, more, someone does nothing more than own a company, even a small company, they they have to, by definition, do this. This is how the system works. So he said, what really influenced them was the specific use value of commodity possessed being a source, not only of value, but of more value than it has yourself. Okay. Or has itself. And so he goes a little farther down and he says, our capitalists foresaw this state of things and that was the cause of his laughter. The laborer therefore finds in the workshop the means of production necessary for working, not only during six, but during 12 hours. He was using six hours as the mm. example and saying he bought the day. It says, just as during the six-hour process, 10 pounds of cotton absorbed as six hours of labor became 10 pounds of yarn, so now 20 pounds of cotton absorbs 12 hours of labor changes into 20 pounds of yarn. Therefore, the price of 20 pounds of yarn uh, before being 18 pence, a, 18 pence a pound, the sum of the values is now 30 shillings. Therefore, the value of the product is one-ninth greater than what he advanced. He had spent 27 shillings and turned it into 30 shillings, a surplus value of 3 shillings, a trick that has at last succeeded. Money has been converted into capital. Now, that doesn't sound like much. But again, he's just laying out the specific thing. Yeah. And also, and, and bosses kind of trick you in this way. Um, he paid you three shillings. He only got six shillings of work out of you. Oh, he didn't make any more than me. Well, he didn't do any of the work you did. And say he's doing that to you and another guy and another guy and another guy and does that to 20 people. Well, now he makes 20 times more than you do for doing nothing. So, you know, I mean, he's kind of laying out that it doesn't have to be this grotesque margin. Any margin is good for him. That's his intent. He's going to try to make that margin as large as possible, but he can do that in mass if the market's there for it just by employing many people as possible. He doesn't have to make a big margin per thing, or he can sell less and make a bigger margin per thing. He really wants both of those things. He just wants a margin at all. He's, He's yearning for that. So, and down lower, he says, the metamorphosis is conversion of money to capital takes place both within the sphere of circulation and outside of it. Within the circulation because it's conditioned by the purchase of the labor power and outside because what is done with it is the stepping stone of production of surplus value, a process which is entirely combined in the sphere of production. Thus, Taoist pour le mieux dans les moulins des mondes possibles, everything for the best of the best of all possible worlds, Voltaire. So he's saying this this is our commodity we were looking for. This really is it. This has done everything we expected to do. Uh, let's see. He also says that labor, considered on the one hand producing utilities and on the other hand creating value, is a difference discovered by our analysis of commodity and resolves itself to a distinction between two aspects of the process of production. So it's saying this is solving our distinction. This is our boy. And we get to move on to our last chapter we're going to do today. And that's chapter eight. Chapter eight. So this is important because we did, I mean, that's it. That's the rub here. For the last eight chapters and God knows how many hundred pages, give or take, (laughs) um, we've been been establishing the foundation of a system and then trying to explain, well, what is the thing that makes a system tick? This is the thing that makes a system tick, that Mm -hmm. somebody can make money by having money and then paying someone to make a thing for him. Yes, and that to make the thing for him, that person can't have money because they have to be desperate. Big big because money. they have to only be able the only thing they can contribute to this equation is their ability to make the thing. And remember, it's not just money. We've thought of it as money because it's an MCM concept, but that C the real C we're looking at is labor because that's labor. the C that makes it M prime. Yep. But part of that you can think of it as part of the M, you can think of it as part of the C. 
the real value here is the means of production. Yes. Okay, that's what that money really means. Yes. So I have this value, I have this factory, I have this land. You know, you can say, I have no money. Well, you have everything to make someone work. You have this thing that you can make other people do work for you. Okay, that's your means of production, that's your money, and you're going to turn it into more money. And you might work alongside them, you might boss over them, but you're really not making the value with your work. You're making the value with their work. You've bought their work. Okay, that's that's the heart, and that heart is going to beat through a whole book, <laughs> and it's going to mean a lot of things. But now, chapters one through six suddenly go into chapter seven, and you go, okay, yeah, that was a long jog, but that made a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it, it's making the rest of it. It gets progressively easier because you've built that. And this is kind of a, this is, by its nature, this is how, one, how dialectic almost always works. And two, how Sherman philosophy at the time in general kind of worked. Any Anything that's kind of in Hegel's school of thought, you're going to, it's going to start incredibly basic and dense and kind of work itself up because the theory is, is you can't touch the other stuff until you have this foundation, until you have it. And then the rest of it becomes just playing with tools and, and concepts that you've already mastered at that point, hopefully. Yeah, and also we breeze through this a little bit to give an overview. I know that you look at the time, you go, breeze through. Yeah, so yeah. You, you breeze through it to give an overview. Um, but if you want to dispute anything, just read these chapters. I mean, the part of the reason why it's so long is Mark covers the bases. And just in the chapters, we have not covered every footnote because there's no. about a billion of those at the back. We covered too. one footnote and there's like 50 there's per footnotes. chapter. Oh my god, it's like literally <laughs> two sentence footnote, two sentence footnote. Like yeah. it, it, it's yeah. insane. It, I mean again, it's it's all in here, it's all there. It's That's that's the hard part of the audiobook of this is it takes the footnotes and stops and reads them whenever uh -huh. they come up. Yes, it does. Yeah, it is. A, it, I have actually started having to just listen to the audiobook while reading the book and then flip back up just to try and keep my brain on track. It's, I'm usually a good reader, so if I have the time, I'll straight read the book. Oh, but I yeah, might audiobook while I work. I shit, I, I shit <laughs> at reading. Me no good reading. All right, so now we're going to constant capital and variable capital. So we were talking about expiring the means of production. Like, you know, you have yarn, and for your yarn, you have cotton, and the cotton becomes yarn. You also have the spindle, and the spindle wears down over time. And you have the laborer. It says so, you know. And eventually he'll die. Eventually he'll die. So he says, the various factors of labor process play different parts. The laborer adds fresh value to the subject of his labor by expending upon it the given amount of additional labor. No matter what the specific character or utility that labor may be, on the other hand, the values of the means of production used up in the process are preserved. Now, it's important. They're preserved and present themselves afresh in the constituent parts of the product. The values of the cotton and the spindle, for instance, reappear in the yarn. The value of the means of production, therefore, are preserved, being transferred to the product. This transfer takes place during the conversion of those means to a product, or in other words, during the labor process. It is brought about by the labor, but how? So he's laying something out, and this chapter is going to dig into it. And it's saying anything that's a means of production is going to go into the product, but it's just going to straight transfer in. Yeah. Okay. The only way you're adding value is the labor. So your variable capital is the labor. Depending on how much labor is done within the time frame, and, and he'll get into different concepts of time and how capitalism affects that. But within the time frame that uh, the labor power is purchased, however much labor is done, that's the amount of variable capital. Constant capital is going to go in directly. Based on the amount of labor that's done, Okay, the constant capital will transfer directly into the end product to make a new new piece of capital. The amount of yarn will go directly into the the um, gloves. The amount of cotton will go directly into the yarn, whatever it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
If you have a spindle, he's saying as the spindle wears down, if the spindle wears down after making 90,000 yards of cotton and you make 1,000, then 1 90th of the spindle's value has gone, gone into, into the cotton. Yeah, and so this is a chapter that, I mean, that overview pretty well seizes it, but we can go <laughs> into it a little bit. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, that that's basically it. So when people say, hey, automation, doesn't automation add value? Well, no, automation has more value than a non-automated factory thing. You know, I mean, it's obviously cost you more to get an automated line to... to print the shipping labels than just a printer. Yeah. And so the labor that, you know, it it takes through that automation as it wears down is going to transfer directly into the shipped product. Whereas, you know, the actual person is going to determine how much of that is used. And again, that's important because two chapters ago in chapter seven, we said you could have all this machinery you want. And Marx didn't envision automation, but... Even automation needs someone to man it. Well, not in this way, but he did. I mean, he he saw. I mean, I think he, he saw. He saw things were going to get more assembly. And more. You know, factories, product. You know, yeah, industrialization to a certain forward. Yeah, yes. yeah. Um, but even then, you know, I mean, you see these tools to work more efficiently, right? That's that's going to appear in the product, and that's going to wear down over time, and you still need a person to work it. So the thing that varies how much is going out is the amount of labor going into it, okay? And the amount of labor going into it is based on the labor power and the labor power being used, okay? How much work you're doing. So you are still making these means of production valuable. The means of production aren't making you valuable. Just like money is congealed labor and makes money value, that makes money valuable. Money doesn't make labor valuable. We, we tend to think of things backwards, but yeah. it's... It's really the labor that makes the means of production valuable. Which would, uh, I mean, makes, I mean, it makes sense when you, again, when you say it, yeah, of course, yeah. The, right. You just never think of it until it's A said. spindle is not, you know, a, again, a, a big factory machine is not valuable because if no one can use it, what's the point? It it's not like it's, down, yeah. it, unless that machine automatically prints money, it, I, I don't, I don't see a real huge value in it. Well, and we said that in the first chapter. Something has to have a use value or it has no exchange value. It has no value yep. if it has no use value. The labor gives that use value. The labor is is ticking that use value box. Yep. It's what makes the, everything go. So, you know, labor is the center of value. And again, Mark spent 40 years just concentrated on value. And as you can see, he's not an idiot. He he went through Hegelian school. He understand all, all the theories going behind that, behind Hegel, Ricardo, uh, Smith, Smith uh, Malthus, uh, you know, all this. He, he, um, what's the, the, the can't, he gets can't. Cons, oh, Cons, don't, whatever. don't. He gets, don't. He, he's got all those guys. Talk about a man. <laughs> oh, I have a Monty Python thing to show you later. Oh, the jokes. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, he, he understands all that, but he really focused on value in the system because he was smart, he studied this stuff, he was becoming disillusioned with the ideological, you know, New Hegelians, and Engels said, hey, man, you, you know, here's this materialist stuff. You're good. And Marx says, oh, I can apply this to the dialectics. I can be smarter. And he focused number one on value. So value is labor, and that's a continuing theme in Marxism. And it, it's very, very clearly right, and it's hard to dispute, you know. Yeah. Um, now he says... If the special productive labor of the workman were not spinning, he could not convert the cotton into yarn and therefore could not transfer the values of the cotton and the spindle into yarn. Suppose the same workman were to change his occupation to that of a joiner. He would still, by a day's labor, add value to the material he works upon. So he's saying, you know, we're using cotton as an example, but this could be anything. It could be anything. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not sure what a joiner is, but he's... Uh, I, I, I think it... Isn't a joiner putting together, like... 
I'm sure you joined. Welder, things, but... welding? Is it, is it oh, welding? Okay. Where you're like joining metal together? Okay, and, and okay. I, I, well, then you could think of like the fuel and a torch yeah. and the, the metal material. That a, per- you're a person who constructs the wooden components of a building, such as stairs, doors, and doors. It's a carpenter. It's a carpenter. Ah. It's ah, a carpenter okay. who makes frames of things. Okay, okay. So the wood, the nails, the, the battery in your drill as it wears down. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that, that stuff is the means of production and that transfers into the value of a home. So, now, uh, let's see, a little later on, he says that the same labor of the spinning both transfers the values, the means of the production to the product, and preserves them in the product. Hence, one and the same time, there is produced a two-fold result. So, that's saying, hey, we're making sure that cotton is not going to waste. We're making sure it still has that value. It's still preserved, and it's going into that that thread, okay? And I'm, I'm just transferring that value over, and then I'm adding new value. Okay, so it's a two-fold process. I'm taking the means of production. I'm making sure the value stays and gets in that product that can be sold so they don't just rot away. I'm unlocking that key, and then I'm adding the value. So, again, you know, the labor, that's that's the central point. And now later he goes, let us assume now that the productiveness of the spinner's labor, instead of varying, remains constant, that he therefore requires the same time he formerly did to convert one pound of cotton into yarn, but that its exchange value of the cotton varies, either by rising six times past its former value or falling to one-sixth of that value. In both these cases, the spinner puts the same quantity of labor in the pound of cotton and therefore adds as much value as he did before the change to the new value. He also produces a given weight of yarn at the same time he did before. Nevertheless, the value that he transfers from the cotton to the yarn is either one-sixth of what it was before or, in the case, six times as before. The same result occurs in the form of the instrument's labor rises and falls while their useful efficacy in the process remains unaltered. So he's saying if a raw material, and he's using the the raw material as as the example, but he's saying if something goes into something that that gets more expensive or gets cheaper, the end product's going to get more expensive and cheaper. This is proving that the means of production are simply transferred. You know, if, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of something that had a shortage lately, and it it raised the prices of of everything that used it. Uh, 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 Graphics cards. Okay. Graphics cards are, are a great example. So in the in the high end computer gaming community, uh, hot, very you know graphics cards are kind of the holy grail. They're what drive everything. They're what make everything go. Okay. Well, very recently you had this uh, fun thing called Bitcoin mining become a giant <laughs> thing. And hey, what do Bitcoin rigs need? They need super high end graphics cards. So now in you know the graphics card industry, there are a niche amount of you know gamers that that really want that high-end card they made a certain amount well now all these rich boys in their lambos decided they needed all of the graphics cards to run their little bitcoin farms it became almost impossible to get your hands on one of these and if you were they were i mean three times as expensive as they should have been uh again the the there was a shortage of that translated directly into the graphics card is just one component of these computers so overall computer prices for whatever reason just all of a sudden were spiking for for no obvious reason other than oh wait there's we're we're running out of this component we need for it okay so yeah i mean that's that's a good example so obviously if it wasn't just transferring the value of the graphics card into the computer then you wouldn't see the spike in prices or the lowering in prices matching up with these graphic cards that value is being straight transferred and all the labor is doing is adding more value so, and the capitalist, obviously, if he's bu- if he's not in the process that's making graphic cards, if he's post graphic card buying and putting the computer, he's not seeing any more value. He's getting his value from that labor. Yep. Um, so now a little farther down, it says the reason why the means of production do not lose their value at the same time they lose their use value is this: 
they lose the labor, see, they lose in the labor process the original form of their use value, only to assume it in the product of the form of the new value. But however important it may be in the value, that it should have some objective utility to embody in, it is a matter of complete indifference to what object serves this purpose. This we are seeing when treating a metamorphosis of commodities. So that is saying that just what we're talking about, right? Cotton doesn't lose its value when it goes into yarn. The graphic card don't lose its value when they go into the computer. They move directly into it. So as one thing expires, loose graphic cards that can be changed to Bitcoin, cotton that can be you know turned into something else, becomes yarn, becomes these computers, it's transferring this value over. Okay, he's really reiterating this stuff a lot. Again, it's, it's a big deal. Well, yeah, because you have to you pound it from every which way to make sure. It's, yes, does it make sense? Yes, it makes sense, and it makes sense in all possible permutations. Yeah, this is this is theory, and this is uh, mm. materialist theory. So it takes nothing for granted. And that's the biggest difference there. Again, you can write a hundred page, you know, thesis on economic theory in a bubble. But if you have yeah. to explain how it actually works when the rubber hits the road, it gets a little more uh, challenging. Right. So you you got to see where the rubber hits the road. Yep. Um, so a little later on down, he says, The lifetime of an instrument of its labor, therefore, is spent in repetition of greater or less numbers of similar operations. Its life may be compared to that of a human being. Every day brings a man 24 hours nearer to his grave. But how many Jesus, days he still has to travel on that road, no man can tell accurately by merely looking at him. So he's saying, you know, you don't look at a machine and say, hey, you have 40,000 yards of cotton left to make. Okay. You you just look at the machine and see a machine there. But every time it's used, it wears down. It comes a little closer to breaking down. And so, again, the value that's transferred from that machine into, into the yarn is just like the cotton being transferred. You just don't see it going away. But it's some fraction of that machine based on the number of yards of yarn it's going to make or the number of computers it's going to make when you plug the graphics cards in or the number of iPhones going to make, whatever it is. And this is another one where Marx gets funny because the next sentence, this difficulty, however, does not prevent life insurance companies from using the theory of averages to draw very accurate and what is more, very profitable conclusions about the length of a man's life. So it is with the instruments of labor. It is known by experience how long on average a machine of a particular kind will last. Suppose its use value in the labor process lasts only six days. It then loses, on average, one-sixth of its value every day and therefore parts with one-sixth of its value to each of the day's products. Yeah. Uh, it's something, again, you can predict it, you can use it on averages, and you can know roughly how much of your means of production are going into each product. And Marx is very good about this. You know, you can see things at a micro level, and that's good because you're dealing every day at a micro level, but you're going to see things at a micro level without theory. And that doesn't tell you how anything works. Mm -hmm. You have to look things at a macro level, okay? Um, and that's important. Um, you know, I mean, if you, if you say, go, hey, you know, everybody's poor because nobody's going to college, well, if everybody went to college, there'd still be the same number of jobs and a certain number of people unemployed. You know, it'd be better if everyone went to college, but that that, that wouldn't solve that problem. Yeah. So, you know, you're seeing at a micro level, hey, if I go to college, I can make more money, and you're ignoring that that's not how things work at a macro level. You're not examining the system. And so Marx is very good about examining the system. If you're going to see where problems occur, you're going to examine the system. Because it's easy enough to say, hey, you know, all these people cause their own problems, but... Why would they be varying problems at, at different times that match up with conditions, you know? Why, if we just assume everybody creates their own problems, why are we trying to solve anything? Why are we cooperating? Why do we have a society? We realize that there's systemic causes to problems. And while there's variations in individuals that make it worse, make it better, there's bad luck that no one can help, overall, the bulk of the problems, causes, and effects are directly tied to a system. 
So Mark looks at it as a system. And that, that's really, really good with defining what capital is, and that's, that's what we're looking at here with this constant of variable capital. Hey, you know, you might not know exactly how much time that machine has, but you know how much time the average machine that does that has. And more importantly, and again, just for the, for the why, is that, you know, why is this important? Well, it's important because that's baked into the cost of what the, the capitalist is selling. He knows, he's done this before, he knows he's going to have to buy another machine after a certain amount of time. Well, how are you going to have enough money to buy that machine? Well, you could save it or spend it out of your own pocket, or you could just build in one-sixth of that into the price of the product you're selling if it wears out every sixth day kind of a thing. Um, and that's what that's what he's saying is happening here. It is, you know, you're ba you are paying for the maintenance as a consumer. You are paying for the maintenance of his means of production because he is baking it into the cost of the product he's providing to you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. And you also got to remember that that you do even see this as a consumer. Marx doesn't take a lot from the consumer's perspective because, as you'll see, I mean, it's kind of unimportant. You're dealing with using commodities. It's not completely unimportant, no. but it's been overemphasized in other pieces of theory, and it misses the boat when you do it. So Marx doesn't wallow in those. But you do see, as a consumer, um, this this law of averages in warranties, right? I mean, we talked about earlier that the capitalist doesn't care about how good of a product they have. Mm -hmm. Okay, they care about how much money they're going to make out of it. So a warranty is there to give you a guarantee that's long enough to make you feel satisfied and buy their stuff, but short enough that on average they're not going to be hit up with all the breakdowns. Mm -hmm. So when all the guys go, oh, it's got a year warranty and it always breaks down the day the warranty goes out, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> That's, there's That's an actuary the somewhere smiling going, yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, later on down he goes, on the other hand, a means of production may take part as a whole in the formation of value, while into the labor process, it only enters bit by bit. Suppose that in that spinning cotton, the waste for every 115 pounds used is 15 pounds, which is converted not into yarn, but into devil's, devil's dust. dust. <laughs> devil's dust. Devil's dust. Now, although 15 pounds of cotton never becomes consumed in the element of yarn, yet assuming this amount of waste must be normal and inevitable under average spinning conditions, its value is surely transferred to the yarn, as is the value of the 100 pounds of the substance of the yarn. The use value of 50 pounds of cotton must vanish into dust before 100 pounds of yarn can be made, and destruction of this cotton is therefore necessary in the condition of the production of the yarn. And because it is a necessary condition and no other reason, the value of the cotton is transferred into the product. The same old good for every kind of refuse resulting from the labor process, so far at the least as such a refuse cannot be further employed as a means of production and new independent values. So that's kind of saying, you know, I mean, if machines wear down, and that's how we figure out the value that's transferred in there, and obviously they are just transferring the values in there. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he made this assertion. But and we're not getting into every detail, but he he has reasoning behind this assertion, and he, he you know he makes it yeah. very clear. I mean, hey, you know if this is wear down, you know this is what makes it tick, but the labor is what makes it actually useful. He's saying, you know, if you got to burn some waste, and again, he goes into the the average, the average congealed, you know, uh, the average socially necessary amount of waste. If mm -hmm. you have to waste fifteen pounds of of cotton to make a hundred pounds of yarn, if you have to. That's normal. You that's know, I normal. Mean, that, you're going to bake that into the yarn. You're going to bake that into the price of it, and you move on. It's not a. It's not an exception. Well, they're 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 wait. They have to waste this much of it. So they're no. They're they're building that in. They're paying for it. It's it's all in there. Yes. And then the last thing I'm going to touch upon, um, Nathan, can you go into more. But the last thing I'm going to touch upon is right at the end of the chapter. He says, as the value of raw materials may change, so too may the instruments of labor of the machinery employed in the process. Consequently, the portion of the value of the product transferred in it may also change. 
If in consequence a new invention of machinery of particular kind can be produced by a diminished expenditure of labor, the old machinery becomes deprecated, more or less consequently transfers so much less value to the product. But here again, the change in value originates outside the process in which the machine is acting and as a means of production. Once engaged in this process, the machine cannot transfer more value than it possesses. Just as a change in the value of the means of production, even after they have commenced to take part in the labor process, do not alter their character of constant capital, so too a change in the proportion of constant variable capital does not affect the respective functions of these two kinds of capital. Technical conditions let's see, of the labor power may be revolutionized to such an extent where formerly 10 men using 10 implements of small value work up a relatively small amount of raw material. One man may now, with the aid of one expensive machine, work up a hundred times as much raw material. In the latter case, we have an enormous increase in the constant capital that is represented by the total value of the means of production, and at the same time, a great reduction in the variable capital invested in labor power. Such a revolution, however, alters only the quantitative relation between the constant and the variable capital, or the proportions which the total capital is split up in the constant and variable constituents. It has not in the least degree affected the essential difference between the two. So that's really important. That's your automation paragraph right yep. there. <laughs> He's saying, hey, you know, I mean, I have, I have these 10 men, and they work together, and they make a little bit of, maybe they mine a little bit of silica. Or you were talking about a plow earlier. Maybe they, you know, plow a little thing. Now we have the super efficient plow. One guy can do it. He can go 10 times as far. He's, he, you know, it's 100 times more productive, right? Yeah. Well, now it doesn't mean the capital's all of a sudden changing. All those old plows lost all their value. So now the labor is going to have to work harder to make up that value, right? Because the end products, you notice, get cheaper as these, we get these new machines that can make stuff faster. Well, now the stuff, the machines work, gets cheaper. cheaper. So all of a sudden this labor back there has got to work that much harder to get it. Uh, but the guy with the big new whammo blammo machine, right? Still making the same amount of profit. Still making the same amount. Well, he's, he's, he's making more because he's still transferring the same value, but now he's using less labor to make the same value at the end, so he's making more profit. He's making more surplus value until the value of the products average out and drop down to catch up, and everybody with the old means of production are left behind. That jolly note. Yeah, and, and I mean, you do see that in real person. That seems complex. That seems like, wow, no. you made a lot of assumptions, but you go, no. I mean, if... If new machines make something more efficient, you see all the profits drop. Yeah. And, of course, the capitalists want the new machines because then they make all the more profits. So you have the new machine. Now you have one laborer doing ten laborers' work. He's making a crap ton more surplus value. Yep. And then as everybody else gets these new machines, because that'll even out, that'll catch up. These guys don't want these old means of production. they got to catch up. And the value of that end product drops. All of a sudden, that surplus value is dropping for this guy, and he'll have to turn around and innovate again. And that'll be important again in another later chapter. Seems like a seems like a practical application would be uh, well lots of them but the one that's jumping in my mind right now uh, the automatic checkouts yeah self scanning checkouts the the concept of wait I where something they had to pay a laborer to run mm -hmm. that machine yeah that checkout station to 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 do it now they don't they yeah. don't I mean I mean again you can in this the, the same yeah, amount of so people now, can go through now the labor that the the people that are doing the stocking mm -hmm. and the shipping and stuff becomes more valuable and that checkout machine is just transferring you know its value and now it's 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 got more value to transfer that automated checkout machine is more valuable than an old cash register yeah but you know i mean those 
those other labors are getting more valuable. And so the per- people that are doing that automated checkout, they're making more. But that's going to catch up to them. Yep. Okay. Um, and that's going to come down. And in the meantime, the guys doing the other labor, they're not making any more money because well, their labor power is the same. Because that's the trick is that you see, you know, those automatic, those those stations went in. Yeah. It, theoretically then Walmart is not employing I use Walmart because they're the fun glorious example mm-hmm. but they're not employing as they don't have to employ as many people for as many hours yeah. to do as much they've just straight removed a cost yeah they probably had to invest some capital in those machines I probably had an initial sure. ally that'll, that'll go. but has that. I mean it's not like the price of everything at Walmart dropped by 25 cents because they're paying people less now yeah, yeah. So those, and, and that's an important thing. They wouldn't make these machines if that made more value. That's not mm-hmm. going to make more value, uh, because if that made more value, you know, I mean, everything else would be more expensive, and they wouldn't necessarily be making more money. They make those machines so that they can undercut the labor and make more surplus off it, using the same methodology that makes the value. And again, that labor is temporarily more valuable. Mm-hmm. But then, as everybody gets those machines, everything else gets cheaper. And everything kind of drops. Settles back down. You'll also notice, again, like I said, the labor power of the, the stockers and all the people like that doesn't go up. You're still getting paid the same amount, and they've got the automated machines to pay you. And and this is where the social necessary labor comes in. If there's more people competing, it's a lower bar for social necessity. Because if you slip up, there's more people with the possibility to replace you. you. So all of a sudden, those people working have less labor power. They just haven't realized it because their pay hasn't really been cut yet. That'll manifest itself over time in new jobs. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, you're seeing in real time uh, the stuff Marx is saying is very, very true even today. All the time. All the time. Jeez. And uh, that is the end of this episode. The next time you think that was good, this one was kind of long because those are some some content-heavy chapters. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we'll have another episode this long till we get to Chapter 15, which might have to have his own episode. <laughs> that one's a real big one. Uh, it's, uh, it's, that's a good, that's a big boy? That's a big boy. Okay, all right. <laughs> uh, but until then, next time we'll just do, you know, 9, 10, 11, and things get a little more exciting there. Stuff really starts taking off. No. You start going, hmm, you know, I mean, this is brutal, this is brutal. But the only reason this is even kind of kept up as interesting as it is is because is we've, you know, injected some of our own thought in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. No, uh, just... Chapter 9 is where it really starts standing on its own, and you go, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, you'll like it. And as someone that hasn't gotten to Chapter 9 yet, I'm excited to finally start enjoying this. Oh, you'll, you'll <laughs> love it, actually. <laughs>